Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. This episode of the URM Podcast is brought to you by URM Enhanced, our tier of premium content that's everything you need to know to deliver world-class mixes. The core of URM Enhanced is our library of fast tracks. Each one of the fast tracks is a video course that dives deep into a specific area of recording, mixing, or mastering in a level of insane detail that you're just not going to find anywhere else. A few of my personal favorites are drum tuning with Matt Brown, creating ambience with Forrester Savelle, and recording metal guitars with John Brown. You get instant access to over two dozen fast tracks. That's over 50 hours of content when you join URM Enhance, and we're always adding new ones, once per month, actually. URM Enhance members also get access to our Mix Rescue series, where we open up one of your mixes, perform a little surgery, and explain what we're doing every step of the way. And last, but definitely not least, URM Enhanced members have the ability to book one-on-one Skype sessions with us and some of our friends. It's your chance to get a detailed mix crit, some career advice, or whatever else you want. To find out more or join URM Enhanced, just go to urm.academy and click the Get Enhanced link. Welcome to another episode of the URM Podcast. I've got an old friend of mine here today. His name is Jesse Zaretti. And if you're a member of URM, then you'll know his band, The Binary Code, from Portfolio Builder. I met him in 2013 when I produced his band, and I was immediately struck by how damn talented this dude was and his ability to get heavy, incredible guitar tones is up there with some of the very best I've ever worked with. Um, He is phenomenal with guitar tones that sound massive. And in the past few years, he's really, really leveled himself up. I mean, he started writing music for Marvel. He's also written a great blog and is in the process of starting a podcast. But I mean, what else do I need to say? The guy has gone from being a guitarist in a local band to composing music from Marvel. And I brought him on to talk about that transition. So I'll shut up. Here goes. Jesse Zaretti, welcome to the URM podcast. Welcome to the Jesse Zaretti on my end podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I just got confused for a second. How are you doing? I'm uh, pretty good. I'm sick. So I apologize for sounding mucusy and gross. Coronavirus? Budweiser virus. Really? Yeah. You're hungover? No, absolutely not. Okay. No. It's probably uh, remnants of the NAM virus. Oh, well, that was coronavirus. Was it really? No, I'm kidding. It's not. That wasn't coronavirus. I didn't get sick this year. I actually haven't gotten sick in a really long time. I feel sorry for all of you who did. <laughs> you moved from New Jersey to Denver. Why Denver? I've toured through here a bunch of times, and I really liked what it looked like, you know, scenery wise. And I also have family here and I had quite a handful of close friends that lived out here, but um, it was really just kind of like a, a reset, like stepping stone type of move. Like I knew before I moved here that it wasn't going to be my landing spot. I knew that I was eventually going to end up probably on the West Coast entirely. I just needed to kind of work my way out that way. Be, I'm close enough where it takes an hour and 20 minutes to get to LA by plane. So um yeah, that's pretty much it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out of here. <laughs> Do you find yourself in LA a lot more often these days? Oh yeah, absolutely. More more than I could have ever imagined. I mean, I was in California uh, half a dozen times, I guess, like within four or five months. 
So yeah, I might as well go out there. Do you think that the LA thing is BS or there actually is all the opportunity people say there is? I think there's opportunities for people who are already working their way up the ladder. I don't think that there's a lot of opportunities for people who want to go out there and figure out what they're good at. So I don't think you can just say, oh, I'm, I'm in a metal band or I'm, I'm a guitar player who's like pretty decent and just show up to LA and like all of a sudden turn into something. I think you have to go out there with a plan um, because it's just oversaturated with talent and, and people who are after the same thing. So I think it's still there. I just don't think it's there for anybody. That idea of showing up to LA with talent, that's like, a very outdated idea. That's what Axl Rose did in like 1984 or yeah. something. When it was an eighth of a billion people less. Yeah. I think that idea of showing up and just being like, here I am, um, doesn't quite work anymore. That's actually the reason that I've never moved there or haven't moved there yet. Uh, when I was dropping out of Berkeley and... A bunch of people that I knew were about to go to L.A. to begin their music careers. Um, they were like, what are you doing? And I say, I'm going back to Atlanta to start a band in a studio. And the response was pretty much from a bunch of people. I thought you were serious about your career. <laughs> and I was like, I am. That's why I'm not going to L.A. yet. And out of all those people maybe 20 that I used to hang out with back then, two of those people who went to LA ended up with music careers. And I would say that those two would have had careers no matter where they went because they're that good. It kind of speaks to that idea that the other 18 just showed up to LA like, here I am, let's fucking do this. And LA didn't agree. It spit them out, made them homeless maybe. It spit out most of them. Most of them don't live there anymore. A lot of them are back to where they lived before that. And this is uh, this is not judging them or anything. It's just that I agree that just showing up from ground zero, that's a tough move. I have seen people do it, but I've seen people do a whole lot better if they're already established when they go there. Agreed, yeah. And also too, I don't really think there is a place to go if you're looking to just make it on a skill set as much as it is like a really solid business strategy. You know, like having a reason to go somewhere, being in demand and also like seeing a path for yourself instead of just saying like, I'm really good. Hopefully if I go there, somebody will acknowledge me and, and you know, make my career happen for me. That's just not going to work. I don't think there's a single place in the whole world where that, that exists. Did you ever have that fantasy that your skill would be enough? No. I've always known in the back of my mind, because I'm very humble about my my talent level, where I've always known there's somebody better than me. And like, why would I just get picked out of nowhere? And I think when you're realistic about who you are as a person, it's much easier to be, I guess, calculated with your decisions that you make instead of like kind of ego-driven. Well, yeah, because you're not living in some... Uh illusion that your talent is just going to convert everybody <laughs> like a, like a magic spell or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like how often are you actually like impressed by musicians anymore because of how many musicians out there can kind of do the same thing? Not very often. Right. Like, like Brandon Ellis, you and I talk about him all the time. Like it's actually impressive to watch him play guitar <laughs> against like somebody who's just like really good at 
playing their instrument. Like he's like he's born to do it. And it stands out in a way that I don't think people who otherwise maybe like 15 years ago would have been considered God tier musicians would have stood out. But like now it's like a Brandon Ellis type of person's the one who's going to really stand out. Yeah. And let me just say that Brandon Ellis, he stood out to me like eight years ago. Yeah. Agreed. Same. When he was a little kid. (laughs) That's not to say that musicians these days aren't awesome. It's actually the opposite. I think that the overall level is the highest it's ever been, which just makes it that much harder to stand out. But at the same time, while I feel like the bar is super high, I think the majority of people, the majority in recording too, fucking suck. <laughs> and so if you're if you're good, if you're hardworking and you're good and you're honest with yourself about where you can fit in, I, I think that it's a lot less saturated than a lot of people realize. Like it's oversaturated with people that suck trying. It's definitely not oversaturated with people that are awesome trying though. There's not that many people qualified for uh, actual positions, in my opinion, from what I've seen. What it comes down to for me is like, what's going to make you stand out if everybody's on that same level? It kind of, it, it's like a great equalizer at this point that everybody is kind of good at like an instrument or something. So what's going to make you stand out? And then there's a band like Leprous where everybody's like a top tier musician individually, but they also write music that matters and is, is going to stand the test of time because it's not focused on trying to impress strictly just other musicians. Like it's got a purpose to actually serve a milestone, so to speak, you know, like it's got a, it's got a purpose to it. So I don't know. It's really weird. It seems like I'm sure sports are the same way too. Like, Oh, that, that guy can jump this high and dunk or something. It's like, yeah, well like 50 other people could do that too. Yeah. By the way, yeah. Leprous is incredible, but it, doesn't feel like there used to be this much skill. When I was coming up, there wasn't this much skill. Mm-hmm. And it was hard back then to make it. Like it was always hard to make it in the music industry. That was always, uh, always close to impossible. Maybe harder back then because there wasn't the internet the way it is now. But I don't remember there being this much skill. I, I remember. Like, I realize I'm going back and forth between saying that most people suck and that overall skill is uh, higher than ever. And uh, (laughs) the thing is, I think both of those things are true. Somehow, I think that both of those things are absolutely true. I think you could suck at using your skill. Yes, I think that that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think you can be an amazing guitar player who can do things that nobody else can do on an individual level, but you can't apply it in a in a way that's going to actually resonate with people um, to take you to the next level of of being that type of musician. Like, I think the guitar hero of today is also a really good songwriter, whereas the guitar hero of like the '90s, like the G, you know, the G two or whatever G three. Um, touring guys like Satriani and Steve I and stuff like those guys were like really amazing musicians at their time and like innovative, but like nobody was like jamming, surfing with the alien on the way to work, you know? Hope not. Yeah, I know. Right. So, but now you have like guys like Misha where it's like, he's a really good guitar player and lays a really good foundation for his whole band. Like everybody in periphery is really talented, but, and they're also technically they're, they're all guitar heroes in the same 
capacity as like a Steve Vai where they're influencing the musical instrument industry, the software industry, and like they influence how guitar players think and write music. It's the same thing, but they have more of a collective skill set to offer for influence than like a, like a Steve Vai does. And that's not to say you know anything bad about Steve Vai. Like I, I love some of Steve Vai's stuff and I think what he did for guitar paved the way for a lot of these guys. But I just think that it's, if anything, an aspiring musician who wants to be note, like noted as being this influential person, like if they want to be in that position, they also have to really find a really good way to apply their, their technique and skills instead of just being really good at taking Instagram videos and shredding, you know? I agree. Uh, actually, the podcast episode that I just did with Michael Montoya is uh, just a perfect example of someone who isn't like the craziest guitar player ever, but figured out exactly what he's good at and how to use it and has built a career off of that. Uh, and that goes a much a much longer way. Having a limited skill set that you know how to use the fuck out of goes way further than having um, a much broader skill set that you're not really sure how to use. Right. Michael's the one from the Metal Sucks Dinner at NAMM, right? That's correct. Yeah, he's killing it. I, I was looking at his Instagram, like all the people he's working with, and like, he's a riff dude, you know? Like, he's not trying to do something that's beyond his natural skill set. Like, I think we all have a musical voice that comes out naturally, like that we say like, oh, that was really easy and, and I'm actually really good at that. Maybe I should just like focus on making that better or that not, not that it was easy that it came naturally to me to become good at that skill set. So why don't I work on that? And it's like, he saw that he's a really good, I guess, chord progression arranger would be like a good way to kind of look at him. Like he writes hooky progressions and rhythms. And when you're good at something like that, like why would you then switch over to learning how to sweep pick with your guitar behind your head? You know, like that's, it seems counterproductive. Yeah. And he's using the hell out of that skill. Yeah. He can take people who are really good at doing the guitar shredding behind the head thing. And then also, also teach them like, Hey man, like that's really cool. But like, maybe you should dial it back a little bit. Maybe it'll work really well over this chord progression that maybe a, a shredder isn't going to understand. Because I think a lot of shredders tend to lay a foundation that supplements the shredding instead of thinking about like how good it's going to actually sound. And that's where Michael comes into play is he can say like, here's how simplicity is going to make this much better for somebody who doesn't care about how good a guitar player you are. When I think of your guitar style, I've always thought that your rhythm tones were spectacular. You're one of those players that can like hit one chord and uh, it just sounds godly. You don't really shred or anything and you don't need to. Did you set off on like a, a tone quest, like with your right hand or anything? Or is that just something that just came to you naturally? I think the conversation that we're having right now, I had with myself a lot when I was younger because I, I used to be really into shredding. I used to really obsess over trying to become like Alan Holdsworth and um, I was really into Wayne Krantz and... Pat Metheny. And, and I, I really wanted to be like those guys, but I realized how far away I was from it. And I would say, say to myself, like, I don't know, man, it seems like people care more about the riffs you right? Why don't you just like focus on that? And like, it just seemed like I, I was able to have a, a real conversation with my ego and say like, dude, I don't think this is where it's going to go for you. And I also came from a really competitive market of music in New Jersey. Cause when I started 
binary code in 2004, bands like Dellinger Escape Plan and I mean, God forbid was also like really relevant back then. I, it, there, there was no competing with that, you know? So it's like, why am I going to do that? Why don't I just write music that's good, but maybe dial back the the shredding and like kind of leave it out. So I, I kind of abandoned shredding about actually 11 years ago, I stopped with the shredding. Um, it's just not for me, you know, like that was, it wasn't my my path and I was just really honest with myself. So I focused on having a really strong right hand, you know, and, and also too, like to give you credit, what you and I had conversations a half a year before we started tracking Moon's Blood in 2014 or whatever it was. And like you told 13. me, yeah, 2013. So like you told me, Hey man, you need to make sure that your right hand matches your left hand. You need to pick hard. You need to use heavier strings. You need to really like focus on your vibrato and bending and like, you know, be really in tune with this stuff if we're going to make this record come out. Cause I wanted to know how am I going to show up to this and, and do a good job in your capacity. And, uh, cause I could kind of, I could always kind of sense with engineers like, there's this frustration when musicians just kind of show up thinking they have it all figured out and the engineer's like, dude, you you have no idea what you're doing and this is terrible. Can you give the guitar to the other guy who like actually knows how to play guitar? I didn't want that to happen. So I just listened to you and I worked really hard at making sure that everything sounded good together. And uh, I, I also, I play guitar a lot unplugged. So I don't, I don't actually rely on tone to make the guitar make a sound. So I just, I think it, translates really well when you do actually plug in. It's a little bit more honest when you're not plugged in. So so you actually try to make the guitar sound a badass just by itself in the room as is, like the instrument. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I, I mean, I play uh, most of the stuff that I wrote on the record that you and I did, I wrote on acoustic guitar. So That's something that I wish more people understood that when you get these like really, really sick sounding tones on records, generally, I'd say nine out of 10 times, the parts sound sick because that's what that player sounds like. Yeah. Them alone in a room, that's what they sound like. Like That's the sound that they create with their hands on the instrument. And then the engineer is just putting it in, in a context. But that actual sick-ass feel and tone, that's... That's not uh, created in the studio. That's coming right off the instrument. And the best players do that. That's why when people buy like tone packs, like Kemper tone packs, or they used to buy Pod Farm tone packs, and they, they get something from a great player that sounds great. And they think that they're going to sound that great. And then they load up that Kemper profile and they don't sound anything like their hero. They're like, what's wrong? Like, did I just get ripped off? Is this actually their uh, their tone? It, it is, but you can't profile your hands. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I mean, a guy like you, you tell people like, it's very unlikely your other guitar player is going to record on this. And I didn't have a guitar player at that time, but you, you made it like very clear up front, like, you know, if you have another guitar player, there's no way he's going to record. So I don't even know why he needs to come down to Florida. And then you have all these other bands who show up and they pitch the idea of like oh yeah wait wait I, I told i told you that the, the guitar player in your band that didn't exist shouldn't come to florida you were foreshadowing me we were we were having a phone call while i was driving and you were like and yeah dude if you have another guitar player like i don't know who's the better guitar player but that's the guy who should come down to florida basically oh okay yeah yeah you were really because you were like he's probably not going to record if he's not going to be as good as you are 
with the riff. So there's no point on sending, like having him take off work and sending him down. Like you, you gave me this whole rundown and I was like, Oh no, dude, actually it's just me. So we're good. Um, but I know that you've also recorded bands who like kind of pitched you the idea of how important the other person's role is in the writing. And then they show up and they suck. And then you end up making the guy who's actually good at playing guitar record everything anyway. I mean, like look at, look at decapitated, right? Like, um, what's his name? Uh, Vatslav, uh, the guitar player. Like he doesn't have to worry about that. Like he's, got everything figured out. So he doesn't have to like argue with somebody. And like, I think a lot of bands have to deal with that where it's like, they feel bad that the other guy might not record. And and then it becomes like this whole big thing. Like I, I dealt with that recording our newest record. It was like a huge issue. And I kind of had to, you know, allow it to happen, so to speak, because of all like the politicking that goes involved, that's involved in being in a band. And sometimes it, it, it worked out in our favor because my other guitar player on the recording actually played really well and, and he crushed it. And I'm very lucky that he did that. But I knew I thought of you in that scenario in that you would have been like, I don't really care how good you are at guitar, dude. Like it's not going to sound the same. You're not going to have the same hand technique. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the ways that I went wrong as a producer is that I never figured out really how to, uh, massage that in a way that didn't end up making you the bad guy <laughs> no blowing bands up so i fully support producers only letting the best person play absolutely 100 percent. that's what you should do there is no other way in my opinion however uh, there's a consequence to it that if you go too hard and you make you make them hate each other just because you know someone might be real sensitive and get offended, have their feelings crushed, and then they have to be in the band and remain in the band so the band stays together and promotes this record that you made. You don't want to basically throw any grenades into their relationship, which you could if um, they're very dead set on both guitar players playing and you're dead set against against <laughs> it. It's a weird situation to be in. However, I think that all the best producers have figured out how to psychologically make it happen. You know, it's funny. You don't think about this in the capacity of like a, an orchestra. Who's the better cello player? Who's going to be on, like, everybody has to kill it on a, on a metal record. You would be surprised, but it does happen with orchestras. I remember in the 90s, my dad had this situation with an orchestra where it basically was dealing with a revolt uh, from the players because <laughs> he did this thing where he would move the best players to the front and hide the shitty players in the back. <laughs> and it worked. It sounded great. Like he put, he strategically placed all the worst players in the hardest to hear spots in the hall. Like he figured out exactly where the weakest points were and he moved them there. <laughs> and then he moved all the best players to where they would basically be the, I guess, the majority of the sound. And, of course, all the awesome players loved him and loved that. But since awesome players are always the minority, you know, the, the majority was not pleased. Um, and a lot of people who kind of had their seat for like 20 years or something suddenly got moved to the back and they weren't too pleased about it. And uh, it kind of started a whole, a whole thing, a whole little controversy, lawsuits even. 
when you get moved, it almost it's almost like reality TV. It's like, what do you mean? I'm voted off the island. Are you kidding me? Like nobody's going to want me to endorse a product or be in a, the next symphony that's going to pass through town or something because you moved me to the back and it's noticeable. Basically, but I guess it kind of goes back to the same thing. Um, you have to figure out a way to make those moves without causing revolt. And maybe it's impossible. Maybe a producer's role does involve them getting hated to some degree, and it's unavoidable. I would have to agree with that. I mean, you're not just a person who knows what sounds best and how things are going to, you know, like you're, you're a director as much as you're a producer, you know? So it's like, you have to be able to tell people what to do. You deal with so many different personality types, especially in music. But I, I think the thing that's really interesting that maybe like not a lot of people who are going to listen to this will understand maybe as much as, as you would, but like the worst player in a really good orchestra is still going to be like one of the best people in that whole state. Yes, that's true. Right. And them not being that good, the thing that's weird is like a lot of the times with with a symphony, especially when it gets into like the hundred piece kind of arena is like, it's not even about how good they are. It's 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 about like a um, like a volumetric filling of sound that's necessary. And you can use those better players who have better like finger tone and have like a better... Uh, maybe they have like a better bow technique or something on a cello. Like you put them in the front and they're like, maybe like the, the lead guitar tone against like this kind of wall of sound that's necessary to make a, a symphony actually make sense and have a purpose. So it's, it's so much more, uh, I guess like sonically complex than anything. I think, a you know, a, a four or five piece metal band can really understand. And it's, it's a world that, just blows my mind. So like, you know, being in your dad's shoes, I mean, you're, you're making decisions like it's a war, you know, like who's going to be on my front lines. <laughs> I still need these guys at the back though. Yeah. I mean, they weren't fired. They were just moved to the back. Right. Should have been fired. Yeah. It's an ego thing. Oh, it's definitely an ego thing. hundred percent an ego thing. I bet you an orchestra doesn't exist where everybody's on the same level. No way. How yeah. how is that even possible? Like Tina Guo is a good example from Hans Zimmer's orchestra. You know, she's first chair uh, cello. There's no way that everybody's as good as her in that in that orchestra. You can't and also it won't sound good. That's why she's first chair. Right, exactly. And and that's a necessary position to be in. And it's it's more than just an ego thing where it's like, well, I'm clearly the best here. It's like, well, you also we can't have all of you. Like we need to have these people who are like supportive in their lack of skill against hers. Like it, it's a necessary component to this sounding full. So it's it's really weird. It's a strange place for sure. I can tell you with great certainty that those uh, first chairs and concert masters and they get hated a lot. I can't imagine. Not normally the most popular kids on the block. <laughs> you and I were talking. Um, I did some work with Amy Porter, who played with your dad, uh, the flute player. Yep. I asked her about that because she was first chair and she does like so many high level things. And she's like, yeah, like not a lot of people liked me when I first started because she was getting like all the good seats and uh, they kept moving her up. Like she was playing musical chairs basically within the same year. And it, it she had to basically wait out a full changeover of, of most of the people in the woodwind section by her, like had to kind of revolve out for her to feel comfortable being in her position. Oh, so there had to be basically like a new set of people who yeah. didn't know her as the underling. Yeah. Well, with flute too, like it was like probably four or six people, but like they had to like be so damaged by 
the circumstances that they had just like fizzled out. And then when she got new people in there, it was easier for her to be kind of in command with people who didn't have that like competitive perspective, I guess. Until a youngin comes in that's really, Better. really sick. Yeah. yeah. Then it gets like thrown him under the bus. <laughs> then the story repeats itself. Yeah, exactly. Did you see um, Parasite? Did you go see it yet? Or you, I you, did. I, okay. I saw it. What did you think of the score for it? Do you remember it? I don't remember it, if that tells you anything. Yeah, I don't remember anything about it. And like, I actually like liked the movie. I, I When I saw the movie, it was before it got a nomination. So I saw it in like an art house theater in Denver. And I left and not one part of me said that's going to win an Oscar. But like, I thought it was really good. I was like, wow, that was really clever. I don't even know how I'm going to be, ex- how, how can I explain this to people? Because most people thought it was a horror movie. But the one thing I don't remember is music at all. I don't know. I was wondering if you remembered the music. I don't remember the music. And I remember having the same kind of feeling as you about about Parasite. Like it was cool, but I didn't watch it and say, damn, this movie's going to, this movie's going to do it. <laughs> I didn't have that feeling at all. Is it a South Korean movie? Yeah, South Korean. That's what I thought. I guess the thing is, I've seen lots of South Korean movies and lots of them are really good. And they've been really good for a long time. So this isn't like a surprise to me right. that a good movie came out of South Korea. I think that it's a surprise to most people that are freaking out about it. I think the majority of people who freaked out about it never have watched a movie with subtitles before. <laughs> so the fact that a movie with subtitles could have been really good just blows their mind. <laughs> I think that that's the majority of what's going on with Parasite. Yes, it's a really good movie. Cool, it is. But there's a lot of really good movies from South Korea. I encourage anyone who has only seen Parasite and is freaking out about it to go and delve into South Korean cinema. I actually don't think that Parasite's like one of the best, best ones. But anyways, cool that it won. At least it wasn't a shitty movie, that one. (laughs) But no, I don't remember the score at all. I remember the score from Joker though. Yep. And I think you and I had conversations with the people where it's like, you don't understand that this movie is going to win very pertinent things. Maybe like, did I think it was going to win best picture? No, absolutely not. Would I want it to? There was a part of me that thinks yes, but like I knew that collectively it just didn't have that overall effect on everybody enough to the point where I think that that would make it win an award. However, if somebody saw that movie and didn't think Joaquin Phoenix completely destroyed every other person who was on the ballot, they have serious delusion issues because I mean, there's just no touching it. And even the score, I mean... She's, uh, Hildur is just too connective to the stuff that she does. I mean, dude, she destroyed it this year. She won for Chernobyl. She won all of her awards for that as well. So it's like, she's a force to reckon with, man. I've, I have a feeling that she's going to keep doing good stuff too. I don't think she's going to end up doing like the next Batman or something. I think, uh, well, that maybe, but you know what I mean? Like a big, huge budget Warner Brothers movie. I don't think she's going to quite step into that territory. I think she's going to stay true to like just doing stuff that's really good. Well, really good and really dark. Yeah. Because I realized there was something about her sound. I was watching Joker. It sounded really familiar. I really, really liked it. I was like, where have I heard this before? So that sounds like Sicario, yep. which I really, really like the score for. It turns out that that's her. Yeah, the cello glissando. Yeah. Like that really weird, yeah. No, I mean, she's amazing. And I think that that's 
that plays a huge role into why she's so good at composing music is because she has a connective um, element to music beyond film score. She also was, you know, she's done work with Sun, the the drone metal band. She's done work with all sorts of different weird bands. I feel like the best composers have worked in a, a band capacity like Hans Zimmer. So what do you mean by connective? I think she gets the emotions from the, the stuff that she's actually seeing. Hilder has not only the classical training and the background to do the science and math behind what works, but I think she also emotionally can... She's almost like an empathic music composer. I think that's pretty rare. I think that's what Hans Zimmer is too. Danny Elfman too, right? Right, Oingo Boingo, yeah. Hans Zimmer, Johans Johansson, who did uh, Sicario with Hilder. He also did Mandy. He's he's a metal guy. He was in a post-metal band. Like I feel like it, there's a huge level of a common denominator in between why these people are so good and, and why it works. I don't know if Alan Silvestri played in a band. I'm, I'm willing to, to bet he didn't. I believe he probably played piano in a jazz or classical capacity, if, if I were to guess, but that would probably set them apart for sure. So Hans Zimmer plays guitar, right? Yeah, guitar player. Okay, that's what I thought. So I think there's something about understanding the world of rock and metal, like the energy of it mm-hmm. and how it affects people. The sheer volume, first of all. This is something that I've noticed a lot of classical people don't understand. There is a lot of powerful music in the orchestral world, but you cannot compare it to what it feels like at a show with an incredible system that literally rearranges your insides. It's like a different level of force. Understanding that, I think, is a big part of why Hans Zimmer's music is so bombastically powerful. He gets that type of energy from, I think, his understanding of those types of music because you don't hear that type of uh, bombastic energy in traditional orchestral music. It's not coming from there. The most bombastic that orchestral music gets is like 75% of where Hans Zimmer goes at most. It's probably like um, a very mathematical and theoretical implementation of that dynamic change too. Like there's probably a, it's a, a pencil and paper move more than it is, you know, like a natural occurrence because people in orchestras are performing music written by somebody else. So it's like they don't really have a say in how that music arrives at that point, whereas a band can kind of determine those things while they're kind of working on it together as a group, you know? Yeah. Do you know if uh, Hans Zimmer writes at the guitar? I think he has. I'm pretty sure when he did Inception, he picked Johnny Marr because he was working on time. And I believe he picked Johnny Marr to come in and take the arrangement further because he saw an opportunity to let somebody who had the tone that he was looking for take over because what he was doing, it just kind of... Have you ever seen somebody pick up a guitar and like their fingers and their hands just kind of look like they're scared as shit to make a move? I think that's what he is as a guitar player. And I think he knew Johnny Marr had more musical confidence. So he had him come in and do translate it a little bit better because you can hear that confidence in a recording for sure. Oh, he's the perfect guitar player for that. Yeah, especially the stuff he did with the Smiths. I think you can really hear that Hans Zimmer is not letting go of his his uh, early roots of being inspired by like King Crimson and David Bowie and Talking Heads and stuff. I think you can really tell that he's still really connected with that stuff in the music because he uses synthesizers still against 
you know, classical arrangements a lot of the time. And I think that's what makes him so kind of hard to touch because he's not trying to be anybody else so much. I think he's just like, I, I would have written this for a band of four people and I was able to make it much more grandiose by adding, you know, 90 more people to the fold. I think that's also one of the reasons that a lot of traditionalists talk shit. Like they think that he's too simplistic. <laughs> God. <laughs> I th- yeah, it's pretty funny. Like I don't even know how to respond to that. I've heard that before. It's one of those things like, well, you're the best. Yeah. Oh God, I couldn't deal with somebody saying that. I would just laugh. I, I couldn't respect somebody who said something like that for some reason. Taste is subjective, but uh, I feel like regardless of all that, there's an objective standard of quality that people should recognize. Yeah, well, I feel that there's a lot of things that are subjective, but I don't think like broad sense success is subjective. And I feel like... No, it's not. Yeah. So like Hans Zimmer, you can say whatever you want about him, but I think on the level of success, everybody wants to work for Hans Zimmer in any capacity possible. Most of the composers out there who are getting smaller gigs, smaller meaning like not, you know, huge budget, you know, million dollar films, they're getting a lot of their gigs through being an assistant or an arrangement composer or you know, even like just an engineer or something to Hans Zimmer, then Hans Zimmer will be like, hey, why don't you just do this? Because I don't have time for it. And that's what the dude from Westworld did. You know, like he was just a guy who actually knew how to do his job really well and worked underneath Hans Zimmer. So I don't think everybody's doing that with these like traditional classical people. You know, I don't think they see the the level of respect that Hans Zimmer has from the entertainment industry as as much as maybe like somebody like I don't know like who's a modern composer I don't even know do they matter anymore I'm just kidding <laughs> not really no right yeah man let me just tell you that back when I used to go to the symphony all the time and my dad had to do a world premiere of a modern piece Jesus Christ those were always the worst nights ever like some professor of composition at some school won some prize to have their piece performed by a real orchestra kind of thing or like, you know, some winner of some grant or something. God, those pieces were always the worst pieces of shit I've (laughs) ever heard. It was horrifying. And I know that I'm not the only person who thought so. Like I remember uh, my dad who memorizes everything the, wouldn't memorize those because uh, just wasn't worth just wasn't worth the effort. <laughs> That's almost like the greatest insult. It's like, yeah, he memorizes everything, but his he was like, well, I think I could erase that from my mind. <laughs> That's exactly right, man. Some some of these were fucking horrendous. I think I get it, like musical pontification, where it just like doesn't arrive at a point, and you can tell that it's just very theory and practice kind of stuff, and super atonal, just for the point of Ugh. being atonal, right? <laughs> just definitely super academic. I have always thought that the orchestral talent moved to Hollywood, like the great composers of today are. In Hollywood. Film, yeah. They're not writing for orchestras, they're writing for movies. I would have to agree with that 100%. I also think that there's going to be a huge shift in what a composer is because of people like Hilder. I think Trent Reznor is going to be dictating a new wave of people who are going to aspire to be in those positions because I, I know you weren't a huge fan of Watchmen, but like I can listen to the score 
all of them. There's three or four different albums for it. I can listen to them like music. That's really rare to do or where you can put something on and like you can use it as background for doing something or you can use it in an academic sense where you're listening to it for, because, you know, Atticus always brings in the, the classical side to things a little bit. It's actually like enjoyable music that I think like a, a lay person could actually like listen to. It might not be right away because I don't think that people know how to get into composing yet still, but I do think that he is going to be a huge part of this shift with Hilder as to what a composer actually does for a movie. Because you're seeing it more and more with horror movies too, where you're seeing people get hired to do these jobs who come from a band, essentially. And I think that's gonna be that's gonna be the future. I I, I know for certain Trent Trent Reznor and Hilder are huge influences on why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I want desperately to be doing what they're doing, which is making music they actually enjoy, but making it more grandiose by inviting more elements into the to the equation. All right, you you just said something interesting. You said uh most people don't know how to get into composing. So how do you get into composing? I I assume you meant professionally. Right, correct. Yeah, not just, you know, winging it. What's a good step? I I've had to answer this question a lot and it doesn't really change. Step number 1 is networking and I think you and I have talked about this at great lengths just for like for sport basically as as friends, but if you're not capable of networking yourself as a personality, there's absolutely no way that you're ever going to get a foot in the door with people who who make decisions like music supervisors, for example. They're just not going to be sold on you as a person and that's going to translate into their confidence and investment in you as, as an individual who's going to be able to make this incredibly expensive product, which ends up being a TV series or a movie or an animated series or whatever it is. And they're not going to have that confidence in you if you show up and you're a dick or you're arrogant or you don't listen, you don't ask questions, you don't make eye contact, all these like really important networking skills that makes a, a, a person good at communicating effectively with people. Um, that's like the step one for me. It doesn't matter how good you are if you can't meet people who can take you through other doors. And I think at the end of the day, that's what, be, like being a good person or being a good communicator and being an actual human being is what's going to get people into the headspace where you can actually give people music in the first place. You know, sucks that that's so true. <laughs> that's the truth. Basically, I think in any field in the arts, that the it's true in business too. The people who network the most go the furthest. Agreed. Yeah, it's absolutely the truth. I guess it's something that people don't want to necessarily hear because I think a lot of artists are introverted weirdos but hey so are we yeah yeah so you got to train yourself out of yeah, it yeah exactly how have you trained yourself it's honestly it, it kind of came naturally to me to communicate with people I don't, I don't have a hard time doing it and it's not to say that my my business partner and my drummer austin that he ever had a hard time communicating with people but i think that you don't realize how good at communicating you are until you meet somebody who's like an expert networker and he in order to take himself out of his comfort zone and become better at networking, he's 24 years old. And he now books flights to gigantic video game conferences so he can go meet video game developers so he can work on their stuff because he's a video game composer. And um, before that, he was like, I have no idea how to even have conversations with people. So he just said, I'm going to 
print business cards, which he made uh, their little thumb drives with all of his his whole catalog on it. And he went to these things as a very young adult and he started doing this two years ago and he just made himself get comfortable talking to people by talking to as many people as humanly possible. But um, that's where I would say I would start at getting better at it is taking, like making yourself go to these things, you know, like you and I, I think are selectively introverted. I think we have the ability to be extroverted if we, if we need to be. And I think some people don't have that choice. And the only way they can break down those barriers, even if it's just incrementally is by putting themselves in environments that are really uncomfortable. And uh, that's really the only way that you're ever going to get out there. You're not going to be able to watch a YouTube video on it. That's for sure. It's, it's implementation, you know, like you have to put it into action and do it. And uh, that's, that's a huge part of it. I mean, if somebody really sucks at speaking, they could do like a, you know, a public speaking class or something, but I really don't think that's going to work. Well, I know that I, I call myself an introvert, but uh, I, uh, have never had a problem socializing when I need to. Agreed. I yeah. feel bad for people who can't do it at all. The thing is, I'm not always a fan of it. I have a very short tolerance for bullshit and I'm not into small talk. And a lot of things that people like to small talk about are the last thing I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, and I don't even know where to where to begin about a lot of things that, People like to small talk about, so there's always a challenge there, but I still figure it out, and I've made a lot of effort over the years to overcome my disdain for it. And I've gotten pretty good at it, and I think that if I can do it, most people can do it. And frankly, they have to if they want any sort of career in production or composition or in a band or whatever, they're going to have to figure it out. It's step one for me always to people because I've had people ask me how to get into composing. And the first thing I tell them is like, you're going to have to network. Like there's no point in me telling you anything else beyond that if that's where you fall short with with your, your skill set. Because if you can't do that element, it just doesn't matter. I, I just don't know how... Are you going to go to California and go to like a a screening or something and network with people there? You know, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to just go talk to every person in a room of 150 people who are just in a movie screening and, and try and talk to people who you have no idea who they're going to be or what they're going to end up being able to offer you, but you have to roll that dice. It's it's kind of like a um, that Minesweeper game. You know, it's like there could be 100 people in a room and three people are actually going to be somebody worth talking to. And I don't know that I know a lot of people who are willing to make the sacrifice to go do that and, and step outside of their comfort zones that far. So it's like, that's step number one. And then step number two is like brush up on everything. You know, like then it's follow these other rules basically, you know, but that's where it all starts. Dudes and bands too. Usually there's like uh, one or two go-getters in every band who right. help the band get to where they are. And then there's everybody else who just played their role in the band. But a lot of people in bands don't actively network. Usually most people in bands just kind of do their thing in a band and are happy that the band is successful. Just kind of do that only. And uh, so they actually have very little clue on how to network like this. It's interesting because you would think that people in bigger bands would just know how to do it. Yeah, I, I think the concept of somebody who's in a, quote, successful, unquote, metal band, um, I don't think that they're going to be able to take their 
practice and ideology into the composing world as easily because I don't think that it translates super well, but I do think that it helps if you're that guy, if you're, if you're the Misha um, of the band where you can be entrepreneurial at heart and also be really uh, good at communicating with people and, and humanizing people and also really good at networking and providing something in return for people's investment in you. So why do you think that, I guess, the discipline or the skills from being in a band don't ne- or the rules don't necessarily translate. I'm asking because so many people are like, orchestral music and metal, it's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> when they're wrong. So wrong. What do you mean that the rules don't translate? I think with being in a band, I think that there's a huge lack of actual industry-level professionalism within musicians, and it's because... Being in a band is, <laughs> yeah, is a lot. It's pretty bad. Yeah. I just think that there's not like business ethic. And like when you find a band that does have somebody who's got a really good understanding of business, like like Ben from Dillinger Escape Plan, for example, he can have a conversation probably with Steven Spielberg. You know what I mean? Like that's such a different thing. And then with being in a band, I think it's a lot of um, people who are really good at being at a sleepaway camp or something, you know, like we're all bros by the end of the tour. And like, that's where our networking comes into play. And it's like, well, you're not going to be able to like bro down with people who are wearing a suit and tie at a film event. That's just not the way that goes. You're going to actually have to find ways to articulate your business offerings to people in a way where they don't feel like you're sleazy. Cause that, there's a lot of people who are really sleazy in the entertainment industry. You also have to be human and you have to offer something that seems unique. And, and I think that that's much harder to do when you bank so much on just being somebody who likes to have fun and like you can relate to the musician um, side of being in a band. And I think that that's just not gonna, it just doesn't fly. Well, yeah, the, the majority of band networking is just, how much can you hang out and party? Exactly. And that can translate into huge things for some people. It can be a stepping stone for filling in for a band that you tour with. And and that's great. If that's what you want to do, that's a great thing for you. But I just don't see that translating. Unlike the business professional side of things, it just doesn't, it's not the same thing. You know, that's not going to get you in the door, you know, of like Wall Street or something, you know, like it's such a different personality type. I, I, you just have to have like a lot. You have to have be be very diverse with with yourself as a person. And if you can't be that way, it's just, I don't know what the odds are. I, how many people become composers these days? It's really rare. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely rare. I do know that a lot of people want to do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I, especially... Your URM students seem to like all collectively who I've who I've spoken to um, are really interested in it, and so much that like they are actually taking steps into wanting to learn how to do certain things, not just on the mechanical side of things, but also in the the business ethics side of things too. And I think that that's says a lot about your students in particular who who do this versus somebody who thinks that they have it figured out because their band you know, can fill a 400 capacity venue who thinks that that's going to translate into, into something. You know, I think being capable of understanding that you're still a student no matter where you are at in your life, I think it really helps people along the way. I think a lot of people forget that, but we definitely hammer into people's skulls that they need to get the business side of this right and they need to be real people and they need to socialize and they need to network and they need to take that part as seriously as the musical part. Yeah. Otherwise, they're lost, I think. Like, it's not going to happen. You could be incredible uh, and it's not going to matter because 
if you can't make human contact with people, nobody's going to give your music a shot. The end. So you have to get that side under control. Yeah, I think ultimately that trying to aspire to become a composer out of the blue without really having it as a part of something that you've wanted for a long time, I think that it can end up backfiring on somebody miserably. I think that it can dishearten them from wanting to continue pursuing music in the capacity they were before. They like it's like some someday somebody just says like I want to be a composer because they saw something or saw like there's an opportunity in it, and maybe they didn't think about that for years and years the same way they did about their band, and then they try to do that. I think it can really shatter dreams that are even behind the composing thing. Like it can really make you take like 10 steps back and it could be a pretty dangerous thing to try to do if, if you really want to do music in, in any capacity. So you have to be very realistic about where you are um, as, as a musician and also more, more than anything, a creator, I guess. All right. So how did you get realistic about it? The opportunity came to me in a very fortunate way and it didn't happen upon the first try. And I was just really humble about the fact that it didn't come together. And I, what do you mean? I was asked to do something and somebody else got the gig and I didn't let it end there basically. And, uh, I just maintained composure about my disappointment and I got asked to do something again later on because I handled it well. And, uh, what I did ended up being good enough for a whole team of people to ask me to do more of it. And um, I honestly didn't think that I would become a composer. I've always really appreciated Hans Zimmer in particular, and I've always wanted to integrate that into what I write for myself personally. But I never in my wildest dreams thought that like one day that would translate into becoming anything more than just a guy in a band. But I did that, again, I did that thing where I listened to myself and... I saw people saying that they really liked what I was doing for something where music is generally not pointed out, like an animated series, for example. And it told me like, well, maybe I am actually good at this and maybe I should continue on with it. And then I just saw more doors opening up and I keep following them. And I'm, I'm not where I want to be by any means. You know what I mean? Like I'm not even on the step yet of where I want to be as, as a composer. However, I do know that, that it's what I'm supposed to be doing based on how much has come my way because of what, what I do for work. So I'm just very intuitive and listening to myself. And if anything, you can kind of see it like this. Like I always thought that my band was going to be you know, a band that got signed and started doing all this touring and stuff. And I thought that we had this really sharp opportunity to do that. And I was able to be realistic with myself and pivot because I found that maybe I individually can actually become successful with music, but maybe not with being in a band um, in the sense of being successful as, as a band can get. But I focus, you know, this is all I do. I, I only care about this. I, I network, you know, I constantly am trying to get better at what I do. I don't stop working. Even if I'm not going to release something, I compose still in case I stumble upon something really good. And yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's really weird. I, I feel like my circumstance is really unique in that maybe it's not like a good influence. <laughs> Why? Well, I guess it kind of comes down to the fact that my, my band, the music that we made and the new record that we have coming out this year was good enough for a person who heard it to say that you're probably going to be good at composing music outside of this genre, would you like to try it? You know, like that's kind of weird. How does that, that doesn't really happen to a lot of people. So I feel like that's an unfair reference. Well, it doesn't happen to a lot of people because their music isn't good enough to make someone 
think that. Yeah, and it's subjective, right? Of course, like it's subjective. But hey, you know what? We could actually dial this back to like I stopped shredding. I just focused on writing good music, you know, in, in my estimation, what I think good music is. And somebody else agreed with it. And they were willing to invest their confidence in me because I wrote this record that, that's coming out for us. And they were willing to invest in that skill set of writing for that style of music into, I think this will translate really well into composing in a completely different capacity. And it did. And I'm really lucky that that happened. And and now, because I saw that opportunity, I'm capitalizing on it. You know, I think a lot of people would have gotten the opportunity and not capitalized. Maybe not even realized how big of an opportunity the opportunity was. I didn't know how big it was at first either, to be honest with you. It took me about a year because I've gotten so hard on myself about what success looks like and how much people actually care about what I'm doing. And I I just started writing for myself and I stopped caring so much about other people that even seeing people say that something I I did was good really didn't register to me too much. And I also like, you know, I, I come from a family background. Like my dad never really communicated how proud he was of things that I did. So I've never really counted on people for their approval in the first place, but I've done that even less so over the last couple of years. And um, I, it took me about a year to realize, like, honestly, it took more opportunities popping up from, from what I've done to actually prove to me that I need to really focus on, on what I'm doing. Being asked to speak at the LA Film School is a really good example. Like talking to future you know, directors and cinematographers and maybe even composers. Like I have no idea what those kids are going to turn out to be, but like that's, that's a school where like legitimate people come from and like they asked me to come talk to these kids and that made me say like, well, they respect what I'm doing. Like, am I doing something good? Like I have no idea. Like, should I keep doing this? And yeah, I don't know. It's it's definitely very strange. It's really hard to capitalize on something if you're unsure of it, you know? Yeah, so you needed to get evidence from the outside world before you were sure that you should move forward. Yeah, correct. Exactly. And and it keeps like picking up more, you know, the the rock keeps rolling and picking up more more moss, so to speak. So it's like as that keeps happening, I think at some point like you can you've seen it too like when you started URM like you can tell just like based on the ideas that you have from work that you've already done, this is going to be huge. You can already tell that that's going to happen. And like when that starts to, when you can see that path, when you actually know your path in life, I think it's much easier to take risks and to invest more like unsure confidence into things. Cause that's where I'm at right now. It's like, I'm still, I saw um, Michael Montoya, his interview with you, like he has imposter syndrome. I still have that. I know you must have that at least once in a while. Like it just, I think it happens for people who actually who like succeed. Right, exactly. Well, I think there are some people who think they're God's gift to green earth. Well, they're fucking psychopaths. <laughs> yeah, they're stuck playing, you know, at a fucking flea market or something, playing flamenco guitar. But yeah, um, I think that that still occurs to me once in a while, but there's a lot of reminders that are beyond what I'm seeking for. Like I'm not, I'm not necessarily looking for approval anymore, but it's coming my way. And I think that that speaks a lot about like how the career is starting to develop. And I think that that's, you know, indicative of like me not giving up. Like here's binary code, like a band we've talked to, I don't know how many record labels and it just never comes together for me. And like binary code somehow is the reason why I am composing right now. Like it just, you have to pivot at some point, know your strengths and weaknesses. If you're that guy who's in a band, who's the guy who's pulling all the weight and you see a window of an opportunity to take a step 
up, you know, like to level up as you put it in a different direction, just do it. You know, like you can do both if you really want to, but you also need to do what's best for you as an individual. So that's kind of what happened. Yeah. I think that having projects that don't work out or that don't work out the way you wanted them to really give you a good perspective on how to recognize when something is working out. Cause, uh, you know, my band never got that big. It definitely didn't get as big as I had hoped it would. And it was kind of a similar thing. Like no matter how hard I worked or how hard we worked, something was always in the way. Like something just didn't come together. Like something just got fucked all throughout. Like we had great opportunities and great things happened, but there was always something, you know, something that would prevent the next level or that just wouldn't connect with people. But, um, you know, with URM, it was super clear that it was going to work right away. No question. And basically I equate it to the feeling of swimming against the current or with the current. Like, you know, like you can feel it. And if you're swimming with the current, everything's going to go way better. That's a good way to put it, actually. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. I think if you're swimming against the current, uh, you're just going to tire yourself out. You can put, like, you know, if you have a band like Binary Code or Doth, you can put all the effort you want into it and make it as awesome as possible. And if the uh, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. And uh, there's very little you can really do about it. I, I think some projects are just kind of cursed in a way. Yeah, agreed. Like there's just something something about them that's not going to allow them to move forward. But it's good to know what that feels like so that you know what the opposite feels like. Because when the opposite is going, you find that doing one-fifth of the effort gets you 10 times the results. Yeah, I agree with that. Hundred percent. That that exactly what you just said is a hundred percent accurate. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And not saying that we don't work hard at what we do now, but it's the difference between grinding and grinding and grinding and getting back like close to nothing for your efforts versus grinding and getting rewards and then grinding more and getting more rewards and more feedback and uh, more momentum. And uh, seeing an actual input and output, like input this work, outcome these results, as opposed to input all this work and outcomes jack shit, basically. Yeah, like the ROI, your return on investment. Yeah, ROI. That's the. <laughs> should have just said that. So I, I think like the thing with Doth as an example, and maybe you could even say binary code too, is like. I feel like in the first place, any level of six, this is nothing against anybody else in your band. I swear to God, I've, I has no, I don't know those guys. Like I've talked to Emil before, but I think record labels invested in you a lot individually, not not your band. So like they invested in your band for sure, but I think the investment was made into you as a person because they knew that you were the captain of the ship. You were writing a lot of the music. You had the vision. You had the networking skills. Like you were the the face of the band, so to speak, in 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 the industry sense. And I think they invested in you. And I think that that speaks volumes about where the investment was put in the first place. Maybe nobody said that, but I think that that's the reality of it. Well, I think that everyone in that band is super talented, and uh, agree a hundred percent. Yes, they could still go on to do great things and 
they're all super talented dudes. But uh, I definitely was the person who was going to LA and networking with the labels and doing all that shit. And like, it was my mission in life to uh, move the thing forward. And a lot of things kept happening. Uh, Basically, the universe kept on telling me that it wasn't going to move forward and it kept getting all these signs that it was cursed. And I still just kept on fucking pushing forward and flying to New York and flying to LA and sending the emails and doing all that shit. And uh, maybe you're right. Maybe that is what the people were investing in. I mean, I've always said that you should invest in people, not skills. Yeah, I agree. Like uh, when you're hiring somebody, you should invest in the person, not you shouldn't hire based on skills. You should hire based on character. Well, yeah, like imagine there was an angel investor for people, right? That when you were starting Doth, they were responsible for putting money in your band's hands. I feel like they would have been saying like, I'm investing in AL because like maybe Doth isn't going to work out, but this guy has really good ideas and he has a, a good mind and he he's entrepreneurial at heart. And I think that with all of these combined elements, maybe... If this doesn't work out, I can still be invested in this this person and like see if other things come to fruition from it. And like that's happened, you know. I was watching Silicon Valley the last season, and there was um, or maybe it wasn't the last season, but Richard Hendricks is kind of like this. He's an up and coming version of um, like a Steve Jobs type, where he's got these brilliant ideas, or he's more like one of the the software engineers who got really big. And there was a moment where Gavin Belson, who is basically the Steve Jobs of the show said something, you know, like, I'm not invested in Pied Piper. And and he was and he was like, Do you know what I'm invested in? And then Richard Hendricks thinks to himself, he's like, Is it me? And the guy and Rick Gavin Belson goes, No, God no, of course not. You're an animal. Like I'm not it has nothing to do with you. Like I feel like that can go two different ways where it's like either the person's invested in the overall product that of the band and like the whole the whole project itself or it can just be in an individual you know what I mean and sometimes it's both you know like I, I do think with Doth that a, a big part of it I I would just be willing to talk to Monty Connor and ask him dude how much of it was that you you knew that AL was going to deliver and do what's right with that band and like you could count on him and then how much of it was that you just also love the band. I'm sure there was a balance to it, but I have to believe that Monty would say that he he invested in you a lot. Yeah, <laughs> what a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what he told me when he heard my band's first demo? He told me that we should bury it so <laughs> deep that nobody ever finds it and completely disassociate ourselves from it. And it's one of the worst <laughs> pieces of shit he's ever heard in his life. Oh my God. Yeah. Was that was that the stuff with like the electronic drums? Yeah, this this okay. the earlier stuff. And uh wow. It was like I sent it to him and uh after we were signed, I didn't get the reaction I thought I was gonna get. <laughs> I, That's like, fucking amazing. Yeah, it was it was fucking <laughs> brutal. I mean, bands are even lucky if a guy responds these days, but like, could you imagine <laughs> like that's there's a guy who's got an automated response that says some shit like that to you? Oh my god. Well, the thing is that one of the reasons that I've been so like brutal with 
certain people when I think it's in their best interest is because people have been that way with me and it's always been a good thing. Like Monty Connor telling me that shit, that's not the only time that he put me in my place. He put me in my place a few times and it was always a good thing. Like I've been put in my place by people over the years in very uh, brutal ways and it was always a good thing. And I always appreciated it. And for instance, when uh, Sukov wouldn't let me play guitar on certain parts of a Doth record, that was a, one of the best things that could have happened because it made the parts way better to have the other guy play them. But uh, also, uh, years later, when I was in that position of choosing the guitar player to play on a part, uh, you know, I had the experience of of being in those shoes and thinking to myself, well, if I dealt with it, you can deal with it. Grow up. Yeah. Which I don't think always went over too well. But uh, I've always thought that um, some of the best teaching that I've ever gotten from people has been fucking sheer brutality. I think actually I told Ben Yumanov when we were thinking about who's going to record our record. And, we, you know, we talked to Zeus. We talked to a lot of people. Ultimately, I was like, I think Al is the guy because in 2005, I recorded with Eric Rutan and you want to talk about fucking brutal. <laughs> like, he's got that, like, I, I don't know, I, like, I kind of hate that, you know, like, oh, I'm from fucking Massachusetts, bro, you know, but like, Eric Rutan's got this New Jersey thing about him that, like, I, I'm, I very much understand in how he handles things. And like, he told this one dude who was on our record, like, who, who, he was in the band at the time who couldn't play the part, right? And the guy was getting frustrated. Like, it was my fault that he couldn't play his part. What do you mean? So I, I recorded left side guitars, and then this dude wanted to record right side guitars, and he couldn't match what I was doing. And he then I, then Eric opens the door to his like little waiting area where you hang out while, while people are recording, and he opens the door like with, a, with sweat on his brow, like almost like furious. And he's like, he's like, dude, you got to come in here and fucking record this part. This guy can't record. <laughs> and he just like, <laughs> just was like, all right, dude, hop out. You're out. And then I came in and like, I've recorded the part and it, and it matched up. And it's like, that stuck with me a lot at that, that level of like militance. And I've rec recording that way changed everything for me. Cause I'd recorded with Jason D'Azuzio and Jesse Cannon before. And like, it's a very different approach. And like, they're they're great at what they do, and um, that personality works for certain people. But I gravitate towards what you gravitate towards, which which is brutal honesty. Like, just tell me what the fuck I need to do, man. Quick, quick, you don't need to like sugarcoat it for me. Let's just do it. Um, that that works for me, and uh, that's why we ended up recording with you. So, I think that people need to understand that when you select somebody to record you, you have to understand their personality type. You know. Yeah, absolutely. If if your band can't handle that sort of thing, don't go to a producer who's known for that, for being that way. There are producers uh, who are much more about the band is who the band is, and they play the way they play, and this is what it is, and I'm going to do the best with what they're presenting me. Right, like a Steve Evitz? Steve yes, Evitz is a good example. Yeah. Kurt Ballou. Yeah. And, you know, they do a great job with what they're given. So... That's not to say that one way is right or wrong. Like their way of operating is foreign to how my brain works. Though I, I do think it's interesting because I love Kurt's records. So like, I don't think that it's a wrong approach. It's just, it blows my mind because I could never do that 
there's definitely something in how he thinks that's different than how I think. Maybe it also is with him too, is he's investing in the band a lot too, because we asked to record with him and he very politely said like, this is really cool stuff, but I don't think that I can invest myself in it. And he said, no. So if he does actually agree to do a band, maybe like he's capable of seeing past the, the functionality because he thinks like the music is good. I have no idea. I can't, I can't imagine to be honest with you. So yeah, I think he only does projects that he's going to be able to do his best work with. Mm -hmm. So I do remember us talking about that, that he's not going to take a project where he's going to have to record it the way that I would record it. Right. So, because that's not the way he likes to do things. So if it's a band that is going to have to be pieced together and good bands get pieced together, that doesn't mean it's a good band or a bad band, but like if it's not a band that fits into his style of, of uh of working then he's probably going to pass on it. Yeah and and he's actually much more diverse than people actually know like he Yes, he, he's very diverse. Yeah, he did this band Kruger who I think is still one of the best bands that nobody knew about and that's for whatever maybe they were cur cursed or whatever it is things just didn't work dumb band name I don't know. But they were amazing and they sounded like Gojira a lot. Maybe even like this is sacrilege because they're one of my favorite bands since I was, you know, like started Binary Code and I love Gojira, but Kruger might actually be a little bit more interesting than Gojira. They're not as good as Gojira, but they're really fucking good and really good players. And Kurt was able to get a Gojira sound. Like that blows my mind to this day. It still does because I think of Kurt as like Converge or Doom Riders or something, you know, something really organic and natural sounding, but he was actually able to do something that was a bit more aggressive. And he also did Animosity, which was uh, Naveen from Entheos. It was his, like a kind of like a deathcore band back when he was like 16 years old or something. Like he's done so many different things. So it's not like because he's not diverse at all and he just does stuff. He's like, I can make this sound like a Kurt Blue record. I think he just, he knows what, what works, you know, for him. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely know that he's a diverse producer. He was telling me about something he recorded that was just a bunch of typewriters. Oh, God. <laughs> like 24 typewriters or something. It's going to be the top 10 for decibel metal albums of the year, probably. He made it sound really cool. <laughs> but I don't mean that to say that, like, I think that he only takes one style of project. Right. It's more just that he, if he doesn't feel that he can do his best work, he's not taking the project. Yeah, agreed. That's that's a lesson all on its own, right? I mean, there are so many people out there who are, I'll record anything. You you inquired, I'm doing it. If if you'll have me, you know, it's like you got to learn how to say no. That's a really important lesson at a certain point. But right, yeah, not in the beginning. Not at the beginning. At the beginning, you got to learn how to say yes to every single fucking thing. Yep. you can possibly say yes to. Yeah, even in composing too. Like if you're really desperate to get into that world, well, then start hitting up you know, film schools and stuff and finding that kid who's got like a really limited budget who, who needs you. I've done this and you know, you'll score something for two, $3,000 and put in way too much work into it for the, for that return. But you need something to show, like you got to have something to show people if you want to get more business. So you, that's kind of a part of the process is saying yes at the right times and then learning eventually your value and saying no when you need to. The thing is that you got to learn how to do way too much work at some point anyways. Right. Like whether the budget's big or the budget's small, you always are going to end up doing way too much work. 
And so if you cut your teeth doing way too much work for no real return and you just get used to it, <laughs> uh, when you're in a good situation and you're doing way too much work, you won't freak out and you'll appreciate it. I agree with that 100%. I actually, it blows people's minds sometimes if I tell them like, yeah, a work week for me can be 70 to 80 hours. You know, like that's pretty pretty average actually. You know, I mean, I take breaks when I need to. I, if I need to take a day off or something, like I'll do that. But I hate quoting the fucking Geico commercial, but it's such a pertinent quote. But it's like when you make your vocation your vacation, you don't mind what you're doing. It's It's a part of the process. As long as I'm not sitting here filling out insurance papers for fucking Best Buy or something, like... I'm I'm happier sitting here for 70, 80 hours a week doing what I'm doing, knowing that it's going to be better for me long term, you know. And and of course, the overall goal is to like not have to kill yourself to to reach a result. But I think that's kind of it. Kind of comes with the territory. I think you know. I think when you can do your craft that comes natural to you for a profession, I think that you obsess over it. You know, like working with Aaron Smith on on the binary code record when he was working on um, some of the synth stuff that he started doing when we flew out to Seattle to record with him, he would spend like a full day on like 30 seconds of audio, like making it sound good with, with synths. It blew my mind. I was like, well, I guess that's normal. You know, like I guess that's something to learn from, from this. And like, I do the same thing. I'll, I'll obsess over three tracks out of, out of 60 for a composition sometimes, you know, and just spend a whole day on it, take a break, come back the next day, Get back at it. Okay, so what what is the typical workday for you like? With composing, I have worked in a very strange capacity for a composer. Sometimes I don't get um, visual lock, which means I don't get creative assets right away. So I have to start composing without any kind of visuals. You might get something like... So you just have to kind of like invent something? Yes, you get cues. So you might get like a zero to 30 seconds, I need this, 30 seconds to 45 seconds, this, like this is the tone. And you might get cues, but you do have to create a lot from your imagination because a lot of the times, for example, if somebody's working on a high budget film, they're going to be working to like stuff that looks like shit and it's not going to be very imaginative stuff. You're going to see a big green screen and you're going to see good looking actors trotting around doing shit that's going to end up getting CGI'd. In really and, weird costumes and dots all over their face. Exactly, precisely. And that's not really like a good environment to gain musical inspiration from. So you really have to rely on how your brain can translate what you think is appropriate. So if I'm lucky and I have the visuals, it it works really well for me. But um, this is actually something that a lot of people know too, is that a lot of composers actually end up becoming sound designers for the stuff that they work on. So I did do a lot of sound design, which is, you know, making sound effects and all those different things have to to come into play as well, um, which is actually a huge advantage for the overall outcome of things because there's a higher level of quality control where I can see how these things work together. Like nothing drives me more nuts than when like you hear music in a certain key and then like a, a sound element is added that's out of key and it just doesn't work. I'm like, why wouldn't they fix that? And it's like, oh, two different people worked on it. And someone can't hear it. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's going to bother somebody maybe subconsciously or it just, it it isn't pleasing. Um, So if if I'm lucky and I have creative assets, I just start mapping everything out. I do have a template that I use in Cubase that uploads, um, I have different ones. So if I'm doing orchestral stuff, it'll upload an array of Spitfire a lot of Spitfire stuff uh, and it takes a while. You know, like I feel like a, a good hour of that is just loading programs and letting the computer function um, at its best capacity with, with how much stuff is open. And then I just start focusing on the visuals. I really start 
um, paying attention to the research I've already done on a character or the scene or whatever it is. And then I start mapping things out. There is a lot of um, note taking and a lot of, I guess you could call it grunt work, like stuff where it's like, you know, just making a note about like, okay, this character you know, should sound like this. And then I create like a whole stem of like, here's all the different things I think of when I think of this character. And then here's actually what people think about them. So there's a lot of that pen and paper work. And then, yeah, just start cracking into the VSTs. What do you mean by here's what I think of when I think of this character? Here's a good example. The Captain America thing was the last thing that I did for Marvel in 2019. And it was an animated thing. And you know his story. He it starts out where he's like the skinny kid, and it's like takes place in the in the forties. And um, I was obsessed with the the score for for Watchmen, and I said to myself, like, how cool would it be to do like Marvel shit that sounds like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross? And I started thinking to myself, yeah, but you can't just start doing like industrial synth heavy work to Captain America. That doesn't make sense in nineteen forty five. So then I started thinking about, okay, it's nineteen forty five. It starts out in black and white. What kind of music makes sense to that era? And then I had to start thinking about techno. Clearly, yeah, techno is perfect for it. Yeah, I need that dead mouse kick drum going through the whole thing. So then I started thinking about like, what is the overall frequency spectrum of something that works in 1945? If somebody were listening to this on like a radio or something, and then I start like taking notes on like, okay, cool, it's black and white. Got to have like some kind of low fidelity, and you know, I just start mapping things out. But then also Captain America, he's patriotic, so I thought of snare cadences and like different type of um, using tune tracks orchestral library to for the snares specifically because you know uh, snare drum for an orchestral. Um, composition is much different than like a, a Mapex snare for a periphery record or something. So I start tying all these things in together. Tempo and pace starts coming into play. You know, how, how fast is the animation moving? Uh, what frame rate is it moving at? Like I start syncing that up best that I can. And nothing is better than like, I, I have to tell you this, Denis Villeneuve, the guy who did Blade Runner and he, uh, 2049 and Sicario. And Prisoners. And Prisoners, yep. And he's doing Dune and Arrival. If you try to compose to his scene cutting, they're like perfectly lined up to tempos like on the money, like 120 BPM. It's really weird. So often a lot of people who do editing and stuff actually compose to rhythm, which is really helpful for somebody who's writing music. So, uh, you know, I spend time figuring that out. Um, but yeah, like you think about a character like Captain America, you have to figure out what makes that character who they are and how do you make that sound? And I didn't want it to sound like goofy, you know, like Navy music, you know, like I didn't want it to sound like, you know, a coronet or like a, you know, a, a sea trumpet or something that sounds super typical. I wanted it to have that darkness and kind of, uh, I guess, uh, like triumphant sound to it, but also make it sound appropriate to what I wanted it to sound like. So where would you find the darkness in a character like Captain America? His girlfriend dying. Okay. Yeah. So she was, you know, he thought that she died and, uh, I wanted to play off of that. And that was like a huge inspiration for for him through the Avengers was he kept like looking at his little locket and like looking at her like, oh no, I, I get to live all these years. You know, I was frozen and I'm really bummed out. You know, like he's just, you know, it's like a whole mental thing. And that's a big part of the story for for that animated series. So, and also Red Skull. Red Skull's a pretty dark character. That's like your your Marvel Hitler, basically. So yeah, it's... It's a lot, you know, you, you have to do a lot of analysis of things that are beyond the music in order to understand better where, what this is supposed to end up turning into. How does that translate into something that has like an emotional impact and not just, 
you know, it's not just an academic exercise where you're checking out the boxes. Right. Cause like you could be like, all right, what's the scenario? What's the tempo? What did people listen to in this era? Uh, what does the character look like? What's he sad about? What's he happy about? And kind of go down a checklist, but that doesn't equal good music. That just equals a checklist. How does it get to actual music? I guess for me, a big part of like I've had some conversations with people who are kind of newer to what they're doing, like maybe they're a director or something. I just have to remind them that there's a reason why they chose me to do what I'm doing and that they have to trust me. And they hired me because I can do this spread of work and that's what I'm good at. I also like was very fortunate with Captain America where I've actually implemented the Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross methodology of electronic and synthesized elements with uh, orchestral and organic. Um, you just have to be confident in what you're doing and and hope that that confidence translates into the music and the people like what you're doing. You know, um, There's a lot of checking in. So it's just once you do the research, you're just going for it and hopefully it works. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, could you imagine like the director of that shitty ass X-Men movie, Dark Phoenix, like they hired Hans Zimmer to do it and he like gives them this amazing score that he believes in and the guy's like, well, I was actually thinking more like this. I think at some point Hans Zimmer's gonna be like, well, listen, you hired me. So if you want somebody else to do it, you can do that, you know? And like that, that's not a good way to look at it, but if you can think that way, like you hired me. So this is what I think works for this. Um, if it doesn't work, tell me. And I can try and make it fit more appropriately. That did happen to me um, with Marvel. I did something for Daredevil and they said it was too dark. Um, and I had to revisit it and dial the darkness back. I actually posted that at one point. I showed people what they considered to be too dark. And all, all it really was is I had somebody singing soprano and alto over it in a really somber kind of Georgi Ligeti kind of style of way. And they were like, nah, that's a little too much for me. So I dialed it back um, and I made, I picked up the pace and stuff like that. So, but I was on the, on the money with the tone. It was just, they were like, it's just too dark. Can you bring it back a little bit? Is there something else we can do? So I picked up the pace, changed the key, moved it around a little bit, rearranged, transposed, et cetera. And, uh, it came together, you know. It's not always going to be a hit, but I, you know, I, I think most composers have really good success rates. At least that's been my experience in talking to other composers. It's been my experience personally. I've had one out of every over fifty compositions I've done at this point in the last two years been sent back to me for being too dark, and that's it. In that industry in particular, I think they invest in your in your professional skills. As in, uh, they know that they like what you do right. before they say yes. Exactly. So yeah. they've got good confidence that it's going to work. Yeah, exactly. So they'll they'll know like maybe it's not going to be on the money on the first go, but they know that they're going to be able to get there at some point, you know? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, why would they work with someone they didn't have confidence in? I think sometimes it, it, it's it can be very political, to be honest with you. I think that there are music supervisors out there who there is some politicking involved in it when you get on a higher scale. Like when you start working with a studio like A24, um, the music supervisors there are much more diverse and you have an ability to find good people to work with. But then I think there are some in-house supervisors at bigger studios who hire with 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 a political ideology within the, the landscape of the entertainment industry. Yeah, so you either have to be on the right side of that or not, basically. Yeah, sometimes there's political stuff and, and it happens and I think that it just transcends the music itself. I think with the political stuff, uh, what I've learned is uh, 
when it's going against you or when you're not part of it, there's not much you can do. So just find a different opportunity. Exactly, yeah. I mean, in some instances, they might even have somebody come in who is the right person for the job. And then like after discussions with like a whole marketing team and a production team, change their mind when it comes down to starting to serve the creative assets to the composers to start working on. And uh, that that happens a lot more than we probably know about. I'm actually willing to bet you we'd never know when that really happens unless you're actually a part of it. I mean, why would we find out? Well, didn't Hans Zimmer just take over doing James Bond? That was a pretty big. We we all noticed it, you know. Like that was a nota, That was a very noticeable thing. I think that that was. They made a big deal out of it. Yeah, I think it, that happens sometimes, but for the most part, we you don't hear anything about it. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot of politics involved in it. I mean, most people don't give a shit. Right. I just think with something as big as James Bond and as big as Hans Zimmer and it happening at the very last minute, people are going to be like, why is Hans Zimmer getting involved in James Bond four months from release? Because <laughs> he's a bad motherfucker and he can do it. <laughs> yeah, and clearly something wasn't going right. That happens with actors too, change outs. They'll change somebody out last minute. They'll be like, yeah, this just shit wasn't working. Get him out of there. Or the actor does something really shitty that could affect the the marketing campaign. And they're like, well, we're not that far into this. You know, we can we can get them out of this. That happens a lot too. I mean, you got to do it. If it's not right, it's not right. Yeah, I think that happens musically a, a whole lot more than than we're aware of. And and probably in the band scene too, right? Like in the middle of a recording. So I know that happens in R&B for, for a fact. You know, somebody comes in to play keyboard on like a Kendrick Lamar record and then they're like, well, I think Robert Glasper would do a better job. So they have Robert Glasper come in and uh, he just plays a Rhodes piano differently and they just deleted the tracks that the other person did. Like, get him out of here. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy, URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up 
and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. That just reminded me of something that you and I talked about when we were in Glendale, because I just mentioned deleting players out of a session and then hiring yeah. somebody else to, to do the job. We talked about when you write something, if you don't stand behind it, if, you, if you're like kind of questioning it, to like actually delete it physically off of your computer for good so you never come back to it again and waste your reputation on something that's not up to your standards subconsciously. Like you know it's not good enough. So why are you going to keep it? Why are you going to hawk it on somebody else because it's such a, it's a good idea? No, you don't believe in it. Get rid of it. I don't remember what we said, but I agree with that. I mean, the thing is, I've always seen deleting players off of something the same way that I would treat deleting one of my own bad ideas off of something. <laughs> like it's... A lot of people take it a lot more personally, but to me, it was always just get rid of it. So I have this thing. I fucking hate hoarders. <laughs> Data hoarders? I have a thing against it because there's a couple family members of mine who were hoarders and uh, it kind of scarred me, like serious hoarders. <laughs> and um, I have a very anti-hoarding mentality. You were at my house in Florida, like you saw like, there's like no like minimalist. I like minimalist, simple things. I like them to look good, but I don't like lots of shit everywhere. And I feel that same way about ideas. I don't like hoarding ideas. If something's not good enough, don't keep it around for later. That's like a hoarder's mentality. It's yeah. like keeping a piece of trash around. <laughs> <laughs> you might have some use for a mummified cat. <laughs> Yeah, I might be able to sell this at a yard sale like or something. Small gain. Yeah, I feel like it's a hoarder's mentality to hold on to bad ideas. Agreed, yeah. I mean, like I think Jordan Peterson had a really cool part of his book. One of them was like, if you don't have a clean room, how are you supposed to go out into this world and make a difference? If you can't, the place where you actually spend some of your time of your day sleeping, if it is a total wreck, when you walk out the door, is your brain a wreck? There's too much shit. You can't, how do you catalog all these different ideas? You know, it's just, it's it's almost like a, a, a data version of like somebody who's got a brain that doesn't really have focus and is like kind of, maybe too scattered for its own good. So if you have if you work clean and you have a clean environment and everything you do translates from one thing into the next. You you're a minimalist or you're clean and tidy and you ha you don't have a lot of things. Your file sessions are really clean. You don't have a lot of crap you don't stand behind. Like I feel like it really translates into many other different facets. Absolutely. So are you ruthless about cutting ideas? Yeah. 100%. Good. Have you always been? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. Without a doubt. Just if it's not good, just fucking kill it. Man, I've stopped rehearsals of a song and be like, well, I don't think we should play this. Like this just, this is dumb. Like in 2010, we were getting ready to do some shows after we did a tour with Revocation. And I remember jamming with my drummer on something we'd been working on for weeks. And I was like, man, every time we play this, like I actually, it wasn't as good as the first time and it's not getting any better. So we just abandoned it. Man, I remember I joined a band once like some summer back from school, I joined some band and there was a song that just always pissed me off. <laughs> and after like 10 practices, and I was like the new guy, but after 10 practices, I was like, can we please do something about this song? <laughs> it's just like two riffs back to 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 back. Like 
something's got to happen. And like, they flipped out on me, got very, very, very angry, uh, and very threatening. I was like, you know what? Fuck you. Uh, so I took my shit and I left, but, uh, the moral of the story was just that, uh, you got to be willing to cut stuff. They never went anywhere uh, because I think they were one of those uh, local types that I call forever local who <laughs> I checked in on them 10 years later and they were still playing those songs. So that uh, that whole thing about the dude freaking out on me about ditching the song or fixing the song, that was a lot deeper than I realized at the time. Like They kept on playing those songs for more than 10 years at the same level. And uh, I see that shit all the time. It's one of the first things I look for, actually, when if I'm critting somebody or uh, advising them on something, is I try to figure out if they're doing that in any way, shape, or form. Like, are they holding on to something for way past expiration? Are they getting precious about their material? Uh are they doing anything like that that I consider to be undesirable? And if so, then I'm going to call them on it because I think that it's one of the most uh, self-limiting behaviors that a uh, creative person can do. If something's not up to par, fucking throw it away like the trash that it is. <laughs> do you think the new Christopher Nolan movie Tenet is going to be applicable to like how you can perceive as a, as a producer or as a creative, how you can perceive the the future and futility of something, you know, how it's like everything they can see things in reverse. It's like the, the, the bad thing happens. And then all of a sudden it starts unveiling, you know, like where this future is going to be. It's like playing with these guys. I'm guessing it was like the strokes or Radiohead. Who was it? <laughs> and then you like make a suggestion and you're like, well, this train is going to derail. I better get a, I better get off of this thing like immediately. Well, yeah, I hadn't been making suggestions that entire time. So this was my first time making a suggestion. Oh, God. And it's uh, terrible. Dude was like, fuck you, Mr. Berkeley, man. Got some big fucking ideas, don't you? And like, just went on and on and on and on and on. It's like, all right, <laughs> fuck you and I'm out of here. <laughs> were, were they actually like good though? Like let's, what in this scenario, if they didn't, do that and they were willing to work with you on that what do you think the potential would have been the potential was real hmm. so that that was that's a huge indicator of a failing band that's why i was playing with them cuz i right. thought it was good but that's a huge issue yeah that's not going to go anywhere and it didn't like you can't have that kind of mentality in a project that's going to go places and uh hey if uh you're listening and you have a, a band member that's like that kick them out <laughs> Give them an ultimatum. Yeah, if you have a business partner that's like that, get a different business partner. Those kinds of people are the worst kinds of people to work with uh, because they will hang on to bad ideas like like it's you know a life jacket and they're in the middle of the ocean or something. Like they'll <laughs> hang on to bad ideas as if it's saving their life or something, and there's just no no reason for it. Uh, I know that a lot of people listening are probably going to be like, well, sounds like my band. Sounds sounds like uh, my studio partner or whatever. And if so, yeah, just uh, get out. Make now. the right decision for yeah. it, for sure. <laughs> and it is that easy, by the way. It is that easy. 
to just make a decision like that. I mean, I recorded with you and a band member who will remain unnamed was an issue. And we may, actually that happened twice. There were things that you, you knew from an objective perspective that were going to be something that hindered the band down the road. And in one of the instances, it didn't even get on the record. And then on the other instance, they did get on the record and they did their job, maybe not to the best of their ability, but ultimately down the road, it would have been a huge issue. And, and I made those decisions with people who had been with me for quite a while. And, and, and I did it in an amicable and professional way where it didn't cause huge dissonance between me and these people. And we'd been doing it for a long time at that point. But you know, sometimes you just have to make a decision. If ultimately you want to survive the circumstance, that's for sure. Absolutely make a decision. It's hard though. I, I remember... In high school, I had that local band with the bad singer, which I think is every local band to some degree. But I had that band with like the cool music and the really terrible singer. <laughs> and I was so scared to kick him out. He was a lot older than me and I thought I was going to get my ass kicked. But uh, and I was like 14 and he was like 18 and like hung out with like criminals and stuff. So I thought <laughs> that I was going to get killed. But also I was, I was just scared to kick him out and uh, should have just kicked him out. My band could have been so much better. But I learned from that uh, to not, not let uh, projects get dragged down because individuals suck. So I learned that in high school. And so by the time I was on to other bands, I was already like pretty ruthless with my thinking. Uh, I met a lot of people along the way who did not share in that level of, uh, of brutality. But like I said before, I treat myself that way too. If one of my ideas isn't good enough, I will kill it too. So like, I don't care where the bad idea is coming from. If it's coming from somebody else or it's coming from me, it's just got to go. And uh, if someone is arguing for bad ideas and like, it's that much of an issue, then they've got to go. The sooner that I think someone is comfortable with uh, navigating situations like that, the better off they'll be. It, people probably think that I sound really, really cold right now. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, you do need to ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. I always saw it like uh, this person is poisoning my future, basically. So I saw it as an attack on my entire future. And that, and when I framed it that way to myself, it made it really, really easy to do what I had to do. Like this person's uh, lack of commitment, lack of quality control, lack of uh, ability is basically going to hinder me from everything, from achieving everything that I'm working my ass off to achieve and that I've dedicated the last number of years to uh, fuck this person. <laughs> they don't get a say. Yeah, it's ultimately it affects you and maybe even them. You know, maybe they're it's holding them back from being involved in something, you know, that is just isn't for them. You know, how, how many people do you think have like left bands and like they get kicked out because they're not cutting it and they keep going? I don't think it happens all the time. I think a lot of the times it it ends for people there. 
And then they can go focus on something else in their life and do better there. You know, like become like a, a dad or, you know, like start a business or something, you know, go do something else. Maybe it's not for you. Which is totally fine. I mean, in the end, it wasn't for me either. <laughs> I started a business too. Like, it's totally fine. So what percentage of shit that you write would you say gets deleted? Like out of all the stuff you write, so you're writing all the time, what percentage of that gets deleted? What percentage actually makes it to somebody's inbox? This is going to sound super arrogant. So far, I haven't written anything with intent that I haven't sent to somebody. But I have written a lot of stuff for personal use that I delete constantly. You know what I mean? But like when it's when it's a job, I, I don't... Well, I take it back. That's a lie. I've definitely started some stuff. Fucking liar. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, within within this particular field of work, I've definitely committed to my ideas, but there have been a couple of instances where I'm like, well, this absolutely does not work for this at all. And I deleted immediately. That has happened. I would say probably two times out of maybe the last 20 that I did, that happened. Sounds like you're getting the bad ideas out of the way when you do like your personal writing. For sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I also think too that maybe I don't if if something's not working very early on, I don't keep pushing forward. So it's like I don't even get to that to that point where I'm gonna commit to printing the the session. So if something's not working out within a couple of minutes, I'm I'm delete it. I'll so just it's that it. fast. Yeah, that quickly for sure. Yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Yeah, does that make that makes sense, right? It does. Like, for instance, uh, I think it's similar. Like when you're dialing a guitar tone, like if you don't have something good in the first five minutes, then you have to totally change your approach. That doesn't mean that it's not going to take you twelve hours beyond that to like refine it. That last five percent, but if you don't have something that's like ninety percent of the way there in the first five ten minutes, you're going down the wrong path, in my opinion. And I think that that's true of a whole lot of things musically. Yeah, of course, there's some things like tuning drums that takes takes a while. Uh, like you can't possibly do it in 10 minutes. I get that. I get that you have to put in time on certain things. But there are there's some basics that if they're not coming together right away, like just move on. And I feel that way about songs too. Like in songs and compositions, if... Uh, if that spark's not there, it's not there. You, you're not going to create a spark just by like beating it. Yeah, well, I think also too, you could say that if you keep prolonging the level of effort in something that's not going to be good, you're you're um, expending quite a lot of energy that you might not get back. And it can be incredibly disheartening, I'm sure, if you know, you're working on something and you, and you spent days on it and it's just not coming together. Like that could really hold you back from trying to do more stuff. So it's like, why don't you why don't you save your energy, get rid of this garbage shit that you've been working on and you know it's bad, just get rid of it. Because you, you're, you really are limited with how much creative energy you can possibly have. Nobody's just like constantly cranking shit out every day. So I feel like it's just, even in the sense of like looking at your brain like a battery, like why would you want to waste so much of your, it's like having an argument with somebody where you're like, I'm not getting anywhere with this person. So what are you going to do? You're going to drain your phone battery having a text argument with somebody. It's like, why don't you just save it so you can go on YouTube and you know, watch some, watch a video of something, you know, like I'd rather spend that, that finite time on something that's going to actually be more beneficial than wasting it, trying to beat a musical dead horse. Creativity is a finite resource. Absolutely. Good creativity at least, right? I think any creativity, I think the good part is 
subjective, but uh, like I think it's been ob- objectively studied in how the brain operates that creativity is a finite resource. You start with a lot and uh, it diminishes over the course of the day. And uh, you have to go to sleep to regenerate it, basically. <laughs> and you might lose it overnight. You might lose your your train overnight. A lot can change through that. Yeah, absolutely. So because it works that way, I think you do need to be selective of which ideas you you run with. Because, yeah, if you just run with any idea that you have, like bad ones too, you might be expending a lot of energy on shit that's going to get you no return. And yeah, I can see how that would be very disheartening. So it's almost like a self-preservation move to throw away the bad ideas. Yeah, it's you're just being fully conscious of... I, maybe a lot of people just function on autopilot or something, but like I feel very connected to my my moves and my strategy. And I don't know if that's learned or if I was, if it's inherent or it's just a part of the process of getting older and learning more about myself. But I feel very connected to time as a concept and in, in the way that I perceive it. So in my day, if I feel like something is becoming a waste of time, then it must be a waste of time and I need to stop doing it as soon as humanly possible. Otherwise, it's going to affect what little time I have left in the day to, to get things done. And uh, I think that if there's a way to develop that level of consciousness and awareness of how, how you function as a human being, that if, if that exists in book form or like some kind of, you know, a podcast or a talk or something like that, I would definitely, even as a person who's becoming more conscious and aware of those things, like I would want to learn how to do that even better because at the end of the day, we don't get to take any of this shit with us to the grave. You know what I mean? Like we all don't, we don't live forever. There's not a lot of time to get shit done while we're on this planet. So you just got to try and limit your time wasting efforts. I mean, understanding that no matter what you do, you're going to be wasting some time in there. Agreed. Yeah, you can't possibly be at your best at all times. Yeah, agreed. And, and sometimes something might seem like a waste of time and then ultimately it wasn't and those things do happen, but I think they're pretty few and far between. How many days on average out of like a week would you consider to be like inspired, got the spark kind of days and how many of them are just you're doing it because it's a job and like it's going okay, but it's not necessarily inspired, but you're doing it anyways. If I'm being completely honest with you, I'd have to change that from a week to a month. I would say probably two to three days out of a month. Am I really on the money with my inspiration where I'm like, oh, I really want to do something right now. And then the rest of it is just forcing myself out of my comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it might even be less than that, to be honest with you. Like I, I don't, I don't have like hypomania or anything like that, but I definitely feel like creatively, like I, I, I work when the mood strikes unless I have a deadline. Um, and deadlines are tough. You know, that's a whole other element of creativity is when you have a deadline for something and you have to, convince yourself. I actually like sometimes might find some tool. I have some tools for giving myself inspiration. Like I might pull up um, maybe like the Dark Knight soundtrack or I, you know, I like just pull something up for inspiration and hope that that regenerates or recharges something in me. Um, and it doesn't often happen, but it, just because something's not inspired doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you're, you're not going to do a good job at it. But I definitely think it helps to work when that mood strikes. And, and I'll sacrifice all social 
aspects of my life for those moments when they do happen. Like, I don't give a shit what's going on. <laughs> like, I'll, like, oh, sorry, mood strikes. I'm going to spend this whole day, you know, cancel a date, cancel a f- hangout, whatever it is, and like get to work because those moments for me, honestly, don't come up as much as I would like for them to come up. So, uh, yeah, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Did you have to learn how to manage that? Yeah. I think I'm still learning too. Like, I think it's still, a part, a part of the process, but like I'm becoming more aware of like prioritizing myself in the professional sense over things that maybe won't be as uh, wildly beneficial, you know. So it's still kind of like a a theory and practice. Yeah, I think it's naive to think that um, someone that composes or writes or does something creative for a living is going to be inspired all the time, and that there's inspiration linked to output uh i think inspiration is a bonus when it happens that's awesome that's great that's kind of totally a bonus if you were to only work when that happened you wouldn't work never work (laughs) you would never work and therefore you wouldn't get good enough to be able to do it for a living and uh you'd be less inspired to work less motivated to work and it's just a bad it's a bad road to go on to try to only work when inspired. Obviously inspiration's great. There's nothing like it. But if you wait around for it, you're gonna be waiting around forever, basically. I wonder if you can get to the point where you're so successful and don't rely on constantly hustling and, and taking on projects to build the life that you want. If you can get to the point where you can only work when when you're motivated, but like I can't imagine that that really I just don't see anybody in the positions where I want to be who are like that. Like I, I can't see I mean, Danny Elfman or Hans Zimmer doing that. Look at Hans Zimmer right now with the Bond movie. Like right. We all know that he only has four months to put it all together. So that's, that's not a joke. That's real life. Dude has four months. At this point, it's a lot less than that. And there's so much that goes into that. Yeah, like he got the gig at the end of last year. That's no time whatsoever. So he doesn't have time to get inspired. I mean, I know that he's amazing, so he's going to figure out whatever tricks he's got up his sleeve to get himself as inspired as possible. I'm sure he's going to do every single thing in his power to be at, at his best, but... uh I don't think that he has the luxury to wait around for inspiration. And uh, that's a dude at the very, very top doing the one of the biggest movies you could possibly ever do. I think in his particular instance too, that like the reason why he is where he is is because he probably shuts down everything outside of what the task at hand, I think he shuts it down. Like if, if he was a football fan, which I... Have this weird feeling he probably is not. I don't think that he's probably a, the type of guy who would like spend a Sunday watching the Super Bowl or something like that when he has work to do. You know, I think he he's like, oh yeah, sorry, I can't do that. You know, doing this. Hey, are you doing this? Nope, I have work to do. I think it's just constantly people would be met with this brick wall that's built around him when he's in his element when he has something to do. You know, whereas some people are like 
well, you know, on Sunday, I'm going to be, you know, for four hours, I'm going to be watching the Super Bowl. It's like, well, good luck with that ethic. I don't know how far that, that goes with people, to be honest with you. You got to really shut down, if especially if you have a deadline. Like, what are you supposed to do? That I, That's not a lot of time. I, I bet you within that time frame that he was given, if he was told he has four months, there's probably a month and a half or two months of actual composing within that. And then there's like so much more yeah. around that. I can't even imagine. That's horrifying. He's probably got a huge team on this one though. Still. Yeah. It's insane. That's frightening. But he's the guy who's going to do it. I remember hearing an interview with Danny Elfman once where he said that whenever he's about to do a, a score, uh, he has a going away party <laughs> at, <laughs> at his house. Wow. That's brilliant. Yeah. He, because he's not going to see his friends or family for about three or four months. That sounds super accurate. Wow. Yeah, so, so he does a going away party and then that's it. He goes in the cave. That's a sacrifice you have to be willing to make. I, I would do that in a heartbeat. I, I already feel like Me I'm too. doing that as is. I spend most of my free time thinking about my future and things that I can do for it. And, uh, I, I try to surround myself with people who can kind of echo chamber back to me things that are relevant to inspiring me. And I, I don't spend a lot, I don't talk about sports with people. I don't talk about shit that, I, that has nothing to do with me. Like, I'm not like, I'm not interested in things that are going to make my, my life. I'm not comfortable yet. So, um, and, and I assume if I got to that point where I was given a task like one of those guys, a huge task like that, I would probably be in the same. I would probably not even fucking tell people and just disappear. That would be more my style. I'd be like, sorry guys, sorry you haven't heard from me for five months or whatever, but I completely relate to that. And I think that that's amazing. Like that gives, that makes the stocks of Danny Elfman go up so much higher for me for some reason. To me, that doesn't even seem like a sacrifice. Like you just said, no, you've got to be willing to make that sacrifice. But in my mind, that wouldn't even be a question. Right. It's not, it doesn't seem like a sacrifice. However, I do know a lot of people who would consider that a sacrifice who would have an issue with that. Like I know a lot of people who I can hear their voice in my head right now being like, you know, weighing real life against a commitment like that. And uh, I was just thinking that uh, in my mind, that kind of thing has never been an issue. Yeah, agreed. And also too, like it's one of the main driving reasons behind why commitment is such a concern for, for a lot of people. Like I... I'm in a position now where this career started developing while I was single and it, it couldn't have happened at a better time because I don't need any distractions right now. And like you can still socialize, you know, infrequently if you want to, but for the most part, like that can be a huge distraction as can having children. Like I have no interest in having children specifically for the sole purpose of I am not comfortable enough with my, my goals where I'm willing to let something be, become a complication in my determination to to finish things that I need to do or grow and expand. And the more elements you add into that and the more complications and different facets of, of life that people have about their lives, I think the harder it is to commit to something like that. Like if, if Danny Elfman, does he have kids? Like I have no idea, but like if he does- I have no idea. Right, like that would be really difficult. That's like being like a soldier, you know? It's like you're not gonna see that person for six to nine months, you know? And it's like, that's a that's a huge- commitment and um, it's probably tough to tell people to like avoid adding too many complicating elements to your life but I mean give your dog away yeah give your dog away yeah exactly or hire dog walkers yeah I think that uh, it makes life much easier if you can just limit how complex your 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 structure is you know and 
it feels really like my drummer and I talk about this where it's like, we're both single guys and like, do we really want to be like complicating things right now with anybody's bullshit? You know, it's really hard to, to commit. And that's, that's what most people want who don't have bigger goals is they want commitment and they want to build futures based around the dependency of another person. And I think being as, uh, independent as humanly possible will make it much easier to commit to a, a Danny Elfman move. Like I'm going away guys. Sorry. You won't see me for a long time. The podcast I did with a Susan Rogers, she talked about that a lot. I, I don't know if you've heard that episode, but she's a fascinating lady. I think she's in her fifties or sixties. And she was talking about how she made the decision to basically be a bachelorette for life because she wanted to be committed to her work as a scientist and an engineer. 100% get it. I, I've known a few people who have kind of been that way. Uh, like I know a CEO of something that's pretty successful who made the decision to not have kids because his kid was his career. And uh, I get it. Makes sense to me. My career is without a doubt in my mind, my child. A hundred. I've said that actually to people before when it starts getting complicated for them. Because I, I explain very upfront, like you know, this is what I'm going to be doing all the time. And if I don't respond to you or whatever, you know, if that's a problem. And then like after seeing that happen enough times, I'm just like, I what is the point of this? Like, why am I even bothering? I should just focus on my shit. And then if there are windows for it to happen, then that's what I'll do. But. I don't see a point in making things more complex. Is Susan Rogers just by chance? Did would, does she have anything to do with Berkeley? Yes, she's a professor there. Oh, okay. I thought that name sounded familiar. I'm gonna have to listen to that one. Yeah, and she she used to engineer for Prince. Uh, she's a neuroscientist. She's a professor at Berkeley. Does she do anything with psychology? No. Well, I mean, she studies the brain, but. No, she doesn't do psychology. Okay. She, she, I definitely know who she is from Berkeley alone, but um, I have to listen to that one. That's it was like driving a Hyundai, trying to keep up with a Ferrari, basically, having her on the podcast. She's so much smarter than me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> She's fucking smart. I don't normally speak to people that uh, fucking house me in the <laughs> intelligence department and... Uh, it was just like, holy shit, <laughs> she's smart. Yeah, you should check that one out. It's good. But uh, she talked about it too. She's so dedicated to her work. Like that's kind of just, that's her thing. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just a different way of approaching things. You know, it's just people feel different levels of success in different ways. And for some people, they, they never feel the full potential of what success is for a long time, if not ever. And I think that, People who are really committed to seeing it through and trying to find success in, in feeling accomplished, it just might take a really long time, you know? I, I don't feel like I'm there yet. I have so far to go. I can tell you I don't feel like I'm there yet either at all. Yeah. Like, uh, I still feel like a complete fucking loser. It becomes even more difficult when you can find ways to really outlining what it w will be to define what success is for you. Like, I'm sure you're similar to me in that there's a, a monetary figure in my mind that will make me feel like I'm, I've become successful with what I'm doing and like I'm not there yet. Yeah, but that's bullshit because I guarantee you that if you got that figure, 
that figure would no longer make you feel successful. Then I'm going to have to double it. Yeah, exactly. That That is actually what happens, right? People get a job and then they're like really excited to be making $14 an hour and then they get a raise and it becomes 18 and then 18 is not enough and then 22 and then 30 and it just keeps going up. So I know that this is true because uh, I have hit financial goals um, in my life that seemed crazy, uh, both like through personal income or through like revenue it's happened several times where there's been some financial milestone that I built up in my mind and then I hit it eventually. And uh, you normalize. It just didn't seem so big once <laughs> I actually got it. And uh, now some of those goals that I used to have, if I were to hit those numbers, I'd be like panicking. <laughs> <laughs> how am I going to survive? Yeah, it'd be like, how, how did things get so fucked up? So I think that, I don't actually believe that that there's a number that can make you right. feel whole. It's good to set goals, though. Like if, if you say to yourself yes, in five years, I want to make $300,000 a year with music, and then five years, you reach maybe you reach it earlier than that, but then you have to reset your goal. You can't just keep saying like, this is the pinnacle for me, you know? Actually, what you can do is then once you start reaching a goal with one facet of your business, then why don't you try and add a different spoke to the wheel of income. You know what I mean? Like I feel like the most successful people that exist on this planet have multiple sources of income. So then you can just stretch it out into a different arena and start doing something else. You know, like um, Chris Hemsworth, you know, it's like, does that guy really need to make more money? Well, of course he does because now he's ma he's made so much money playing Thor. He wants to make sure that that is sustainable and continues. So then he's stretched out to a different source of income, and he made that exercising service that he has. You know where he's like, "Here's all my secrets from building my Thor body or whatever it is." And it's like you just find a new way to generate more goals um, that are relevant to to what it is that you're into. You know, I think some people would say, "Well, someone like that is so rich that." They could stop working. Aren't they successful? And obviously, it's a certain type of person who gets to that level and then still keeps on going. That's what got them to that level in the first place was the fact that they're goddamn relentless. So I kind of think it's one way or the other. Like Either you're satisfied or you're not. And if you're not a satisfied kind of person, you're never going to be. However, the, the beauty of it is that you'll probably go a lot further because you're never satisfied. Um, so it's kind of a catch-22. I think it's really tough to have both. Like, I don't think that you can be satisfied and also go very far because being satisfied will make you slow down. So it's uh, going to always have to feel a little bit unstable about things. But I've thought of success as uh, me feeling like I'm at my potential. And so... I'm not even close to that, so I don't feel successful at all. Uh, but I've also thought of success as like, can I quit now, do something that would get me canceled, and then <laughs> live the rest of my life at the level I live at now? And the answer is no. Right. So I'm not successful. Yeah. That's kind of how I define it. And even people who are getting to that point where they, they have an out and they can leave something, your brain just starts shifting. You start normalizing, and then your brain shifts and starts perceiving things differently. I don't know. I think you're right in that you can't be a person who's, who can reach a point and be comfortable and also be somebody who is going to push things to the next level. I just don't think they exist. You know, I think it's personality types. You know, it's very A and B. 
I don't think there's an A, B, and C. I think with with careers, I mean, I I do think that maybe somebody can become really successful to in other people's opinions, but maybe not. There's always like a step further that you can go. So if somebody gets to a point, like let's say somebody becomes a billionaire, they could become a trillionaire. Like that's, you didn't reach that high. You don't, do you own a country? <laughs> do you own an island? Like, I don't know. Like I think it can just be, there's, it's just infinite, you know? So it's either A or B for me, like the way that I, I perceive it based on our conversation. Cause I haven't really thought about this too much. Yeah. I think you're right that uh, it's in the, in the eyes of other people. Yeah. I know a lot of people who would say, why don't you just stop? Don't you have enough? But I just think it's not in some people's nature to stop. Yeah. And also what's enough? There is no enough. Yeah. I don't know what enough feels like because also too, if you're doing what you love, how can you stop doing what you love? That doesn't make any sense to me. You know what I mean? It's like, if you, if like, I love film and I love music. So it's like, so what am I supposed to do? Like I, I reached a certain level of success, so I should stop doing it. That doesn't make any fucking sense to me at all. I mean, that's why you should never listen to what other people have to say <laughs> about your career. 100% agreed. I started ignoring that kind of stuff actually a long time ago. High school actually, because uh, that's when I first started sharing my goals with friends and uh, started getting really weird feedback. Like, why do you want all that? Or you should just be happy with this. Or you should do something because you enjoy it. Or like, you know, them telling me their opinion on what I should do didn't sit right with me. And uh, I kind of learned then to just ignore other people's opinions about uh, my goals and my ideas of success. And uh, it served me well to ignore those people. Like, for instance, uh, some people very close to me doubted me with URM and you know were really intent on letting me know how difficult it would be or how unrealistic it would be or things like that. Um, how I had a good thing going, why why drop that? Like people who were just being concerned, you know, because they cared about me. Right. Why drop a six-figure career for something? And if I hadn't, I think, been in the, uh, if I hadn't had the practice of just ignoring that kind of bullshit, maybe I would have listened to them. So... Don't ever listen to other people's opinions on your goals, in my opinion. Sometimes don't listen to them when they're positive, too. I've had the experience... No, never listen to them, positive or negative. Positivity should just be like one of those things where like, you just absorb it and move on, but don't let it inflate, you know? Because I've always... You know, if somebody's like, yeah, I think it's great what you're doing. It's amazing. It's like, yeah, I'm still going to do this anyway. It's, it's good, man. Like, you don't have to... I appreciate your support, but it's not going to, like, dictate the decisions that I make going forward. And sometimes even like the, the negative stuff can actually be fueled to prove people wrong. You know, like I really, it's a weird um, example, but the movie uh, Dolomite is my name with Eddie Murphy, that whole storyline from that movie, I found so incredibly inspiring for some reason. Like he was just like, you, you tell me I can't become a comedian. He became a comedian. You tell, tell me I can't put out a record. He puts out a record on his own. You tell me I can't make a movie. He makes a movie. And like, he built a career doing that. Like, it's amazing. You know, everybody kept telling him no and he can't and he kept doing it. He's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to do it anyway. And he does it and he, you know, and he, and the best part about it is he never did everything that he wanted to do. And he didn't like look back and tell everybody, like, I told you so, like, you're an idiot, blah, blah, blah. Like, he was just like, I'm really happy that I did accomplish things. And 
that that's all I needed. You know, it's not not to prove anybody wrong, but at the same time, it's to prove that you can. You know. Well, yeah, to yourself though. To yourself, yeah. It's nobody. Nobody else matters, really. If if you're really dedicated to something for the right reasons, you don't care what anybody thinks, good or bad, really, for the most part. Well, the thing is, if you're gonna believe that negative opinions are bullshit, then you have to believe that the positive ones are bullshit too. You can't be selective about not listening to people, in my opinion. I agree. You're being dishonest. 100%. So, yeah, if people are full of shit with their uh, bad ideas, then they're just full of shit anyways. (laughs) And I've always thought that people being discouraging of my ideas just meant that they didn't understand them fully. Um, But when they were positive about them, that de- that didn't mean to me that they understood them any better either, um, because they could never they could never see it the way I saw it in my mind. So, in my opinion, it would be fruitless and pointless to go to other people for advice about my uh, goals or aspirations or anything. Uh, so I've rarely ever done it. Um, Any time that I've done it, I realize that I was just trying to massage my ego. Agreed. And I would realize that while I was talking to the person about the goals, is realizing, you know what I'm doing here? I'm just trying to get a dopamine hit <laughs> by uh, talking about my goals because I'm making myself feel like I'm getting something done. In reality, I'm just getting my ego massaged because nothing's actually moving forward. What this person says to me now isn't going to make any bit of difference and it's going to have no bearing on the actual outcome because they don't actually understand what it is that I'm trying to do um, and they don't matter in this equation. So I need to stop doing this. I need to stop going to other people with my goals. I rarely ever do. You're ultimately in control of your your outcome for the most part. You know, like you, you pack your own lunch. You're in charge of, of what happens on your day-to-day and somebody else agreeing with that unless like they're a person in your industry it's just not going to change anything like it's and and if anything it could be really unhappy where it misleads you to thinking that you're doing enough and you should just keep doing what you're doing where instead of like hearing somebody say like you know like I think it's really cool but maybe you could like dial back to going out and partying or some shit like it's really rare that you ever get a breadth of information behind somebody's support or lack of support it's usually very like cut and dry um, and it's kind of just like, where is this coming from? How is this constructive for me in any way whatsoever? So it's just good to ignore it from from everywhere. And I still deal with that. I still have people in my family who really care about me, who are saying things to me like, "What are you going to do?" You know, because I'm moving to California. They're like, "What are you going to do when you get there?" And it's like, "What? What the fuck do you mean? What am I going to do when I get there? Like, you think I'm just going there and I'm just going to live in a tent, you know, while I'm there?" It's like I have a plan, you know. But it's like that person has actually communicated to me as well that they just don't really understand my industry and my career, so they're just showing their concern. So at least like they were able to articulate that. But I don't think everybody does that. No, because they don't understand that they don't understand. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I feel like I got on this tangent uh, because a lot of people come to me for advice. Right. They come to me for advice, and every once in a while, I think that it's a valid conversation. But I feel like 90% of the time, they're really just trying to get me to affirm whatever it is they're coming to me with. They're not actually coming to me for advice, and they're going to do what they're going to do, anyways. So, really, they just want to hear themselves speak like a sounding board. Yeah, like a sounding board. And um, I don't think that's a positive thing. 
honestly. I think uh, we know what's best for us. Yeah, it's like use your intuition. Like if you feel like you're going to ask somebody you trust a question and your mind plays plays a whole scenario where I've done this with you before. I'm like, hey, dude, like, do you think it's okay for me to talk about my career and like my communicated wins and and to to do these things? Because I was really unsure of myself. But in my mind, I knew when I asked you that you were going to say yes. And it's like, why didn't I just fucking listen to that and just do it? That's exactly right. Yeah. Just telling you what you already knew. Exactly. Yeah. If if you can just find a way to trust your, you have to like learn to know when when your inner dialogue that happens is is something that is trustworthy. And if you can't identify that, then work on it. You know, like you gotta you gotta learn when to trust yourself. I guess you know. And and I knew when I asked you that question, I knew that you, what your answer was going to be. I just figured. How did you know? Because I because of the way that you speak about other things, you know, like the way that you talk about success and how you perceive success, it just lined up so much with we we had already had conversations that were irrelevant to this, where I knew what the answer was going to be, and then I knew that if I asked you, you saying yes to me would be like, you know, somebody stamping the approval book, and it meant like, oh, cool, like you can now, you know, you can now enter the gates of whatever it is you're you're going to, even though I knew. But you didn't need that, right? I That's didn't need it exactly. That's what's crazy about it is I should have known. And like honestly, going forward, like I've had moments where I just trust my gut instinct now, and I just say like it's okay for me to do this, and it makes it easier to make decisions about what I think is right or wrong based on on that information. You know, good. Yeah, you should. You know best. Right. I mean, nobody else is going to know for you. Yeah, and you also have to stop giving a fuck what other people think. That, that was like a huge lesson for me too. I was like, I got to stop caring about how people perceive what I'm doing. You know, it's like people are really cool with you posting or sharing your um, accomplishments as long as you're not killing it. And then as soon as you start killing it, it starts bothering everybody. And that that's like something I had to really shed with that experience. Yeah, uh, I... I kind of went through the people see me as one thing uh, and I see myself as this one thing. How am I going to explain to them that I'm now this other thing? And then uh, I just decided to not give a fuck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have a whole social circle who know me as a guitar player who were not very accepting of me as a business person. They can go fuck themselves if they have a problem with it. But it took me it took me a little bit to come to terms with that. Yeah, I think it takes takes a lot of people time to do that. It's just it is really weird though, like to to place value on people who don't really matter. Why do we do that? You know, where does that come from? I, I don't understand. And I think it's everybody does that for the most part. It's really hard to to shed that ideology. But um it is weird though, thinking like, you know, it also sucks when people communicate to you that they're bothered by what you do because I have had that happen to me before, like where somebody I was talking to like busted <laughs> me too. Yeah, they they bust your balls about like you know it's like that's a humble brag or something. It's like what the fuck do you mean that's a humble brag, dude? I worked my ass off on this thing. Like why is it a humble brag that I did this work? Like I had somebody like actually just randomly. <laughs> I swear to God, this is a fucking true story, and I've forgiven the person since then because they've apologized. But they sent me. A message randomly after not talking to him for a long time, just saying, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> like they just said, you're a piece of shit. And I'm like, what? And then I said, what did I do? And before I could even give them an opportunity to explain themselves, I said, go fuck yourself. And I deleted them because I'm like, what does it even matter? And then I talked to them years later and they said it was it had to do with me posting about 
an article that I wrote for Reverb and they didn't like that I was successful and they explained that to me and and then they apologized and they had better introspection on the situation. But I'm like, what a weird fucking thing to happen. Like how many people call you a piece of shit in their mind, <laughs> you know, because you're doing something that, that you're, you're passionate about and you're proud of. It's so weird. I, I've gotten those quite a few times. Uh, one of the first times was like in 2004 or something. No, it was like in 2005 or something like that. It was just like, fuck you for what you did to those guys. You're going to learn. It's like, what? <laughs> so uh, I guess I had kicked some people out of the band a few years earlier, and uh, we were starting to get attention, and some rando from the local scene just decided to tell me that I was terrible. And uh, I've gotten those, you know, every... Every now and again, uh, sometimes more often than not, uh, sometimes not that often, but someone just hitting me up to tell me what a piece of shit I am or something I'm doing. <laughs> it's fun. It's a really odd thing to have happen, but it's like the first foray that you have into success is when people start hating you for your accomplishments. Like you see that where people just say nasty shit because they don't like seeing somebody succeed. Some Israeli-Mexican guy I know once told me, losers hate winners, and it stuck with me since then, and it won't go it's, away. It's true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. It did bother me at first when uh, when I would get those attacks. Like It took me a moment to to not give a shit when they happened. Like, they, would, like, they would happen, and then they would, they would like ruin my day. I would let them ruin my day, and I'd play what they said in my head and think about it and debate it with them. And then eventually I realized it was really fucking stupid. It's generally when that would happen, I would like go check out who the person was and be like, <laughs> why am I uh, engaging with this person? Um, and then even when it's happened from people who aren't complete losers, it uh, it's still like, who gives a shit? I know I'm all right. It's weird. Like, do you think that your level of how bothered you are by something stems from a measurement and comparison to that person. Cause that definitely helped me feel a little bit better about hearing those words. That one time I was just like, well, who the fuck are you? <laughs> like wh who, the why the fuck does your opinion of me matter? What are you doing with yourself? You know, I know that's egotistical, but like what else am I supposed to do in that situation? Let that person call me a piece of shit and be bothered by it. Why should I do that? I don't know. I get what you're saying, but I have had people who are not losers come after me and it doesn't really bother me anymore. Um, and I can't say, what are you doing with your life? Because they're killing they it. are doing something right. with their life. So it's more just like, fuck this person. Who cares what they think? They don't matter. The end. That's a good lesson to take from it. Who cares if they're successful or not? Yeah, like, I mean, they're just as big of an idiot as anybody else. They just happen to be successful. They don't know what they're talking about. Just because they uh, had some success with something doesn't make them God. Their opinion doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. Agreed. I had to basically train myself to think that way. It took a little while. I call it a success because uh pretty good at thinking that way now. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely getting better at it too. Even like having this conversation right now, I just like learned that I do somehow measure 
somebody's um, criticism of me based on like where they where they stand and like I should really try and continue to rework. It's like I'm halfway there. It's like I'm I'm capable of saying to myself like, hey, listen, you've done shit, so maybe what people think doesn't matter to you, but I have to take it a step higher where I could, like, I don't know how I would respond if, if a hero of mine told me, like, I fucking suck. Like, I don't know how that would, how that would affect yeah. me, so I need to prepare for that. That's the next step, is uh, to disassociate it completely from any accomplishments to where it's just, it doesn't matter what anybody says. Regardless, you will feel much more free when you get it to that point. Yeah. Um, it's more difficult, but... uh the thing is that if you're comparing, like say that you're comparing yourself, you, like someone says something fucked up to you that you don't know and your initial reaction is to compare yourself to them, then it that means it is bothering you because you're going into it, you have a defense mechanism that's going up. So I think it's better to try to figure out ways to not let it bother you. And then uh, if it doesn't bother you, then it doesn't matter who the person is. Yeah. So I think, I mean, like feathers bouncing off of armor, basically. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, this is all easier said than done. Like I've seen huge celebrities talk about talk about that shit ruining their day. Like I think I saw George Clooney talking about it once. <laughs> People that are in the public eye on a serious, serious level still get bothered by it. It's kind of like uh, Joe Rogan. He's like, I don't read. The, like he, he tells all of his people who come on to his show, like, don't read the comments. Why do you do that? Why are you doing that to yourself? <laughs> you know, like, don't make it harder for yourself. Just ignore that shit. Who cares? I understand where he's coming from. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you just oh, you're just opening yourself up to pain. And I definitely do think that uh, anyone who starts to experience some success in their life, they will immediately start to feel the hate. Uh, and there's a lot of dumb memes about this and like like uh, stupid songs about this sort of thing. But it actually is really, really true that the that especially in this type of field, the moment you start moving forward, people will try to pull you down. But to me, that's like a good gauge that things are working out. So rather than let it bother you, take it as a sign that that you're getting somewhere. Yeah, because. If you weren't getting anywhere, then these people wouldn't be coming after you. Yeah, right. It's like a tall poppy syndrome type of thing. It's like you're the you're clearly the king of the castle and your whole environment that you're around is like bummed out that they're not where you're at. So Yeah. I mean, also people go for the easiest target. Yeah. If you are uh being seen as a target, it means that you're visible. Yeah, that's that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, if people are if people are putting you down, it means it's because they've seen you and they've seen your work. And sometimes you're going to see positive, sometimes you're going to see negative. But if you just see positive all the time, you're probably not really killing it. What video exists out there on YouTube where it's all thumbs up and no thumbs down when it's like a million views? You know, I don't know a single one. Yeah, exactly. There's always going to be somebody. So I guess like it's a good thing to do about it is to just pretend like it's kind of funny or just. Ignore it. Yeah. I don't know any movie, any song, any band, any success that doesn't have like the haters <laughs> coming after it. Like I just, I've never seen it. Yeah. Agreed. Since the internet started. So, you know, it comes, it comes with the territory. The thing is, I think that it's shocking to people when they're first starting to feel success. I think that to people who have been successful for decades or whatever, it's like, yeah, whatever. 
But I think, you know, if you're in your first few years of it, um, it's kind of shocking because it's a level of hate that you're probably not used to in regular life. So it can be kind of, I don't know, shocking's the best way to put it, I think. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's kind of fucked up to receive hate on that kind of level. But uh, what are you going to do? I mean, what's the option is to not be moving forward and then no one would notice you. Well, yeah, and also too, like most people on average, I'm sure, build from nothing. And when you come from nothing, you have this beginning where you feel unsure. And then if the business starts to succeed or your endeavor starts to succeed, it's kind of like, it's a surprise all on its own. So when you start seeing negative stuff too, it can also be a little bit shocking. So yeah, it's definitely an interesting thing to see. It's weird to think like you should aspire to have haters. But it's true because it means that you're getting somewhere. Right. Seriously, have you ever seen any product, movie, song, celebrity, sports star, singer, decision maker, anyone who's done anything in this world who doesn't have an army of haters? No, I mean, there's people who criticize saints, you know, like... Mother Teresa or Gandhi, you know, like there's people out there who are digging for evidence to find negative aspects of those people. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, so I, I just think it's it's a part of the game. Yeah, exactly. I really like the score for uh, X-Men First Class. I think the score is fucking awesome. It's so like minimalist, but like just right. And I posted about it once and the level of animosity that came my way over posting that I liked it was kind of ridiculous and uh, people were just going nuts about how I shouldn't like it and how it's not complex enough of a piece and all this stuff and it's like you really really care really care so much about this score but you didn't write it and uh, that's it the end you didn't write it so well those people are fucking idiots because Henry Jackman's the shit. I know exactly who you're talking about. The guy who did the score for that? Yeah. Yeah, he's he's a Hans Zimmer protege. I can hear it. Yeah. He's worked with like some of my favorite musicians ever. But I, I mean, why are people so stupid? I don't get it. He, oh, by the way, he's a, an EDM guy. Like he came from a, uh, make, making music with, and he did like synth pop and stuff like that before he started doing film composing. So he's another one of those guys. But it's like, wh- when did everybody, dude, you and I, like one of my favorite things between us is a true expert. <laughs> Everybody's a true expert on this shit. <laughs> I have a eerie that uh, people are not stupider now than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. I know some people are saying that society's getting dumber. I don't believe that. I don't agree at all. I just think that now we have access to every idiot's opinion. Yeah. So they've always had these opinions. We just never heard about them. Now we have front row seats to everybody's opinion. Everyone who's it never would used to matter how negative people would get about something because you would never hear about it. Uh, This is just some new phenomenon that we have access to every fucking idiot's opinions on stuff. But it's something I need to remind myself of a lot because, you know, uh, have an internet company and everything. So I have to be on the internet a lot. And so I'm bombarded by people's ideas. And uh, I need to remind myself that this is a crazy reality that we live in where I get a front row seat to everybody's idea about every single thing. And uh, you need to just ignore
ignore, ignore, ignore. People use the internet as kind of like a, just like a personal scrapboard, like scrapbook, like a personal scrapbook diary, uh, like a public diary of just every single stupid thought that they might have. You can't let that affect your life. Agreed. Yeah. That reminds me of that. Uh, I wrote that article recently on uh, social media about how I unfollowed everybody. And It's a good article. Thank you. I appreciate it. But yeah, I, t- I touched on that where it's like, before I did that, you're just getting this digital stream of consciousness from everybody. And like, I don't really know how thought out and expertly crafted a lot of these ideas are from people. And I think that they're not, they're not. Yeah. So it's like, why I don't even want to see it. (laughs) You know, I just want to like, if I want to see it, I'm going to go look for it. If I don't want to see it, I'm not going to go look for it, but it's definitely uh, nobody's a, a bigger idiot than everybody at this point. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jesse, I think this is a good place to call it. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm glad we got to redo this one, actually. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.